Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. She's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Albino You can easily change your coat when the snow melts, but that's not so simple for animals whose fur turns white in winter for camouflage. A new study finds they'll need to rapidly evolve to match a climate with less snow. Correspondent Tom Bonsi has the details. The Pacific Northwest is home to four mammals that change color with the seasons, white in winter, brown during the rest of the year. There are two species of weasels. Snowshoe hares and jackrabbits also live and die by the effectiveness of this camouflage. But in a future with less snow cover, survival could depend on staying brown all year long. Some wild bunnies do that already, says Scott Mills, a biologist at the University of Montana. So the animals in the south and on the coast stay brown year-round. Mills led a research team that mapped other places worldwide that could be hot spots for evolution to keep pace with climate change. One of those zones runs down the length of the Cascade Mountains, from British Columbia to the northern Sierra. Mills says the Cascade Range is home to a mix of winter brown and winter white hares. Are the conditions there for rapid evolutionary change to happen? What are those conditions? You need to have variation in place, and in this case, we do. Mills says you might be surprised by how fast animals that breed like rabbits can evolve. It can happen on what we would call ecological timescales. It could happen on the order of three to five to ten generations. Mills says the identified hotspot zones deserve protection to nurture the adaptation, propagation, and dispersal of animals better suited to a less snowy climate. Much of the Cascade Range is national forest. The paper from Mills's lab appears online in the journal Science. I'm Tom Bonsi in Olympia. In the fall of 2008, an Indiana woman named Omega Young got a letter saying she needed to recertify for the state's public benefits program. 
but she was unable to make the appointment because she was suffering from ovarian cancer. She called the local office to say she wouldn't make the appointment because she was hospitalized getting cancer treatments, and she lost her benefits anyway. The reason? Failure to cooperate. So because she lost her benefits, she couldn't afford her medications, she lost her food stamps, she couldn't pay her rent, she lost access to free transportation to her medical appointments. And Omega Young died on March 1st, 2009. And on the next day, she won an appeal for wrongful termination and all of her benefits were restored the day after her death. This is one of the stories the author Virginia Eubanks tells in her latest book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. That book is the subject of this week's All Tech Considered. Virginia Eubanks argues that many of the automated systems that deliver public services today are rigged against the people these programs are supposed to serve. She dives deep into three examples of automated public services, welfare benefits in Indiana, housing for the homeless in Los Angeles, and children's services in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, which includes Pittsburgh. The Indiana case was so bad that the state eventually gave up on the automated system. Virginia Eubanks started by telling me what state lawmakers were trying to accomplish through automation. Indiana was attempting to save money and to make the system more efficient. But the way the system rolled out, it seems like one of the intentions was actually to break the relationship between caseworkers and the families they served. The governor sort of did a press tour around this contract. And one of the things he kept bringing up was there was a one case where two caseworkers had colluded with some recipients to defraud the government for about, I think it was about $8,000. dollars mm-hmm. And the governor used this case over and over and over again to suggest that when caseworkers and families have personal relationships, that it's an invitation to fraud. So the system was actually designed to break that relationship. So what happened is the state replaced about 1,500 local caseworkers with online forms and regional call centers. And that resulted in a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment, which was a 54% increase from the three years before. Is an automated system of public services inherently going to be less helpful, less effective than something like Uber or Lyft or Amazon or all the automated things that people who are not in poverty rely on every day? No, there's nothing intrinsic in automation that makes it bad for the poor. One of my greatest fears in this work is that we're actually using these systems to avoid some of the most pressing moral and political challenges of our time, specifically poverty and racism. So we're kind of using these systems as a kind of empathy override. I, you know, let's talk about Los Angeles. So there's 58,000 unhoused folks in Los Angeles. It's the second highest population in the United States, and 75% of them are completely unsheltered, which means they're just living in the street. I do not want to be the caseworker who is making that decision, who is saying there's 50,000 people with no resources. I have, you know, a handful of resources available. Now I have to pick. But the problem is that we are using these tools to basically outsource that incredibly hard decision to machines. So the underlying problem is not that the housing system is automated, but it sure doesn't help that automating that system allows people to ignore 
more or less, the fact that there are not enough houses. Yeah. So one of the folks I talked to in the book, this great, brilliant man, Gary Blasey, has one of the best quotes in the book. And he says, homelessness is not a systems engineering problem. It's a carpentry problem. Right. Hmm. If you've so got 10 I, houses for 20 people, it doesn't matter how good the system for housing those people is, it's not going to work. Exactly. As you point out in the book, caseworkers have biases. There are caseworkers who are racist, who discriminate, who favor some clients over others for inappropriate reasons. Doesn't automation have the potential to solve those problems? Yeah. I, let's be absolutely direct about this, that human bias in public assistance systems have created a deep inequalities for decades, and it's specifically around the treatment of black and brown folks um, who have often been either overrepresented in the more punitive systems or diverted from the more helpful systems because of um, frontline caseworker bias. So they get thrown in prison more often or their children taken away more often. They get public housing less often, that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, but the thing that's really important to understand about the systems I profile in automating inequality is that these systems don't actually remove that bias. They simply move it. So in Allegheny County, where I look at the predictive model that's supposed to be able to forecast which children will be victims of abuse or neglect in the future. In that case, one of the hidden biases is that it uses proxies instead of actual measures of maltreatment. And one of the proxies it uses is called call re-referral, which just means that a child is called on and then a second call comes in within two years. And the problem with this is that both anonymous reporters and mandated reporters report black and biracial families for abuse and neglect three and a half times more often than they report white families. You draw these three detailed pictures of automated systems falling short in Indiana, California, Pennsylvania. Do you think a different author could have found three different automated systems somewhere in the country that were working really well and providing services effectively? Absolutely. One of the things that's different about the way that I wrote the book is that I started from the point of view of the targets of these systems. Doesn't mean I only spoke to those folks, but I spoke to, you know, unhoused folks, both those who have had luck getting housing through coordinated entry and those who haven't. I, I spoke to families who have been investigated for maltreatment. And I I will say that when you start from the point of view of these very vulnerable families, that these systems look really different than they look from the point of view of the data scientists or administrators who are developing them. And I wasn't hearing these voices at all in the debates that we've been having about what's sort of coming to be known as algorithmic accountability or algorithmic fairness. I was never hearing the voices of the people who face the pointy end of the most punitive stick. And I really thought it was important to bring those stories to the table. Virginia Eubanks, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. Her book is called Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. As your body grows A Tangipahoe school board member is coming under fire tonight for a controversial post he put on social media. He may have to answer to a crowd of people during tonight's school board meeting. That's where Chris Jackman is joining us. She's live in Amy with reactions to what he posted online. Chris. 
Yeah, we're uncertain how the reaction may be at tonight's school board meeting, but it is causing an uproar because of the message and the image that was posted on that Facebook post. Now take a look at this picture. This is the post that was posted by school board member Mike Whitlow. It shows a noose with the words at the top saying, quote, if we want to make America great again, we will have to make evil people fear punishment again. Now once the post received harsh criticism by people in the community, including parish council member Louis Joseph, Whitlow took the post down. Whitlow did release a statement to the media saying in part, the article had no racial or discriminatory overtones Whatsoever. However, after receiving comments on the article regarding an attached photograph, I immediately removed the link and apologized if the reposting offended anyone. For those that know me, I am confident that you would attest that I am a man of faith and inclusion. And again, the school board meeting is expected to begin at 6 o'clock tonight. Now, this is not on the agenda, the discussion about this post, but we could hear from people and their reactions during the public comment section. Of course, we'll keep you updated on any developments that become available. Reporting live in a meet, I'm Carice Jackman, Eyewitness News. And Carice, this is a story that got its legs on social media, and the response to it has been plentiful. Danny Monteverdi joins us now with a look at some of the reactions online. Yeah, that's right. As you'd expect, Karen, this is a story that got a lot of strong opinions on both sides. Dozens of you posted your thoughts about it on our Facebook page. Here are just some of the comments. One uh, Facebook user named Henry Bruce says, is it just racist or stupid? Janice Fisterer says he chose the wrong visual image to get his point across. Trisha Bernard, she says that is there's not one thing about that that's okay about this post. And Josh Dixon writes that uh, Whit, he knows Whitlow, describes him as someone who tries to serve everyone. He says that's why Whitlow issued an apology for any misinterpretation or misinformation. Karen? February is Black History Month. That's the time of year when we make a special effort to learn about some of the key people who have shaped black life in America. But now we're going to hear more about one of the key institutions that shaped many of those figures. We're talking about historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Many of the African-Americans whose names you know attended them, like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Thurgood Marshall, even the star of the new Black Panther movie, Chadwick Boseman. You might remember when newly installed Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos called these schools quote, pioneers of school choice in a statement following a listening session with HBCU leaders. But these institutions were founded when African-Americans, many formerly enslaved, did not have a choice. They were not allowed to attend most schools. Yet they created spaces that nurtured and inspired political leadership and economic advancement. Filmmaker Stanley Nelson tells that story in his latest documentary, Tell Them We Are Rising, the stories of black colleges and universities. And Stanley Nelson is with us now from our studio's in New York. Stanley Nelson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. You know, your film powerfully describes just how much of a burning desire that formerly enslaved people, or actually people still living under slavery, had for education, and just how much resistance they encountered in trying to get that education. Let's play a clip. This is Kimberly Crenshaw, Executive Director of the African American Policy Forum. A slaveholder could do virtually anything to his slave. He could work a slave to death. He could rape a slave. He could sell a slave. It's my property, the argument was, so I can do whatever I want to with my property, except one thing I can't do to my property. I can't teach my property. I can't teach my slave how to read or write. An educated Black population could not be an enslaved Black population. 
Could you talk a little bit more about that? Tell us just some of the stories about just the lengths that people went to to try to get schooling. Yeah, I mean, the, the film starts with some recreations that, that we made where, where people are using anything that they could find to try to write. You know, a, a pencil and paper were not available to enslaved people. So, you know, people wrote in, in flour as they were cooking. They wrote in water. They would p- pour water on the floor and try to, you know, make uh, letters out of, out of out of water. Anything they, they could to learn to read and write. Um, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about the, the uh, Kimberly Crenshaw quote is that it, it, it really sets up the idea that, that education was forbidden and, and, and why it was forbidden. Because one of the things that, that you have to understand about the time of slavery for African Americans is if you can't read and write, all you know is what's on that plantation and on maybe the next plantation down the road. So you don't know that there's an Africa. You don't know that there's an England. You don't know that there's an Asia. All you know is 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 your time of enslavement. And I think that was one of the central pieces that, that we wanted to convey in this film. You know, the film is very, you know, exciting in a lot of ways. It's very um, moving, but it also ends on a very unsettled note, if, mm-hmm. if I could put it that way. I mean, toward mm-hmm. the end of the film, a number of the interviewees express a lot of uncertainty about the future of HBCUs. I mean, five have closed since 1989. Several others, including one that you attended, Morris Brown College, lost their accreditation. And there are those who argue that with the era of you know legal segregation over, black students have choices, and some, some argue better choices that have more... Um, you know, presence in the kind of the current economy. And it, it, and all of that seems to be kind of weighing on all these institutions. I mean, what what do you say about that? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that certainly uh, many HBCUs have had a harder time since uh, integration. But uh, in the last couple of years, many uh, HBCUs have seen an increase in application as as we go into this this kind of very highly racialized uh, new United States that, that we live in. So that many uh, young African Americans who are going to college are saying, you know, let me live, you know, uh, four years of my life in a in a safe black intellectual space, in a space where I'm not going to be judged every time I enter the room by the color of my skin. So there's been an increase in some schools. Um, one of the things that, that people say over and over again is, you know, um, we don't talk about whether we need Catholic universities. We don't talk about whether we need yeshiva. You know, so why are we even even talking about this? The other thing is that, you know, um, black colleges and universities still today graduate an outsized number of African-Americans in, in so many fields, you know, in the STEM fields, lawyers, doctors, dentists, judges. It's really important that we have this kind of safe intellectual space for young African Americans. There's a reason why Martin Luther King graduated from an HBCU. There's a reason why Brown versus Board of Ed came out of an HBCU. There's a reason why uh, the sit-in movement started at an HBCU and spread all over the South. So I think, you know, we need those institutions today just as much as we ever did. The film is premiering on PBS, which means it'll have a national uh, exposure. And yet you've come off of this exhausting schedule (laughs) of screening at... 20 different HBCUs? I mean, Yeah, about 20 HBCUs, right. What reaction did you get from the students? Uh, the reaction has just been amazing. You know, when we go to HBCUs, I mean, not only do people come from that school, but people come from the surrounding area 
who have gone to different schools, and they all come in wearing their school colors. People clap when there's a picture of their school in the film. We just we were able to use just incredible, incredible pictures and footage because we went back to the schools themselves and found pictures and, and footage in their archives that nobody has ever seen before. You know, these, these pictures have not been used in other documentaries. So uh, the, the images that we use in the film are, are just incredible. And where does the title come from? It comes from a story, um, you know, right after the Civil War, a, a Union general went down south um, to, to look at what was going on, and he talked to a group of students, and he said, well, what should I tell them up north when I go back north? And a student raised his hand and stood up and said, tell them we are rising. Mm. And we heard that story. We said, okay, there's the title. <laughs> we got the title. Now we all we have to do is make a film. <laughs> okay. That's Stanley Nelson. He's the director of the new documentary, Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of black colleges and universities. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, although you'll want to check your local listings for exact times. He was kind enough to join us from our studios in New York. Stanley Nelson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, thank you. Bad Nation. Another school shooting. 17 souls gone, teachers and students and staff. America, which bills itself as the greatest of nations, is as helpless as a kitten. It has no solution. Today in school, students have about as much protection as did we, who, as students, were told in the 50s and 60s to duck and cover under our deaths in the event of a nuclear bombing. Today, they're told to lock themselves in a classroom or a closet. No protection. None at all. When over 20 babies were killed in New England several years ago, I said nothing would change. Today, years later, America, a mad nation. From imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You know, we talk a lot about how communities are reshaped by tragedies, how people's lives are changed when they experience violence firsthand. But how about those who watch these tragedies and disasters unfold live through phone and television screens? How are those lives affected by a constant exposure to mass tragedy? Well, Dr. Sandro Galea is the dean at Boston University School of Public Health, and he spoke about these questions with Rachel Martin. Dr. Galea, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rachel. What does the research say? What do we know about how people are affected by this constant exposure to tragedy, like the massacre that we saw happen last week in South Florida? Yeah, the research on this is very much evolving. We um, started getting some good evidence after 9-11, which probably was the first large-scale traumatic event that was watched by millions in real time. And that evidence started to suggest that people who do experience the event through the media can well go on to have psychological distress or uh, mental health issues themselves with a particular wrinkle. The people who are most affected are people who have had previous traumatic experiences hmm. in their own lives. So the data from that event suggests that if you had been, let's say, in a car accident and you might have had something wrong or not, but then another event happens and that event then triggers the psychological distress that might have been latent after the car accident. Hmm. And since that event, there has been uh, a growing body of literature that suggests that experiencing events vicariously through watching things live on the media is having more and more potential to affect whole populations, both those who are 
directly affected as well as those who are indirectly affected. We also have a, just more exposure to the details, right? It's not just tuning in to cable news and seeing these stories and images on a loop like we did when the towers came down. Mm-hmm. There are even more pictures, even more yes. videos that are coming from the events as they happen. I mean, we saw the students in the Parkland shooting were taking video in the real moment, and we all it, absorbed that. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So you know, going back to the 9-11 data, we found that it wasn't just watching any images that matters. It actually is watching images about people hurting that matter. So, for example, you mentioned the loop of the towers falling. The best evidence after 9-11 suggested that watching the towers falling did not make an impact on people's mental well-being. What did make an impact is watching images of people falling. Right. So in today's context, in the context of the Parkland shooting and other events like it, it's the videos of people who are actually experiencing trauma or who are in fear. That's what matters. So and I think it's a very much as a human response, a compassionate, empathic human response. Now, of course, from a mental health point of view, that is horrific and terrible. From a system change point of view, one hopes that our shared compassion for the people who are directly affected by these events will push us into action that will stop some of these events. What advice do you give to people who are trying to navigate their way through these tragedies, either as someone who was victimized personally or or just those of us who've been observers to all of it? How do we cope? Perhaps the best advice I could give is to recognize that psychological distress that becomes chronically felt conditions, typically things like post-traumatic stress disorder or mood anxiety disorders, are both real and disabling. So I I suppose you asked me about advice. The advice is to be aware that these are real concerns and real issues and that anybody who is listening, who thinks that they may be having psychological distress from these events should see a mental health professional. Dr. Sandro Galea, he's Dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now listen to this. The day after the carnage, an old friend of Breivik's turned up in a television studio in Stockholm, and he said he was surprised by all the Knights of the Templar stuff and the 1,500-page manifesto and what have you, because Breivik had never really been all that religious, had never been political either. But, the bloke said, the one thing that really brassed him off was when certain girls he liked passed him over for guys of Asian origin. As the teenage survivors of last week's high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, speak out and demand tighter gun control regulations, the young victims of a 2011 massacre in Norway still struggle to find their voices. A new movie called You, July 22, premiered this week at the Berlin Film Festival. Esme Nicholson says the film tries to tell the, tells the story, tell the story through a survivor's experience. We're getting the first full picture of the horror as authorities piece together what happened. On July 22, 2011, after detonating a bomb in Oslo, a right-wing extremist disguised as a policeman turned up at a summer camp on the Norwegian island of Utøya and shot dead 69 people, most of whom were teenagers. 
It's estimated there were around 600 taking part in the summer camp. Of the the gunman was a white supremacist who targeted the campers because they were junior members of the Norwegian Social Democrats and because of their liberal, multicultural values. At the time of the attacks and during the trial a year later, news coverage focused heavily on the shooter. He admitted to carrying out both attacks, calling them part of his plan for a cultural revolution. Now, almost seven years later, a feature film reconstruction of that day attempts to shift the media's focus away from the perpetrator and towards the victims. Andrea Banson is the film's lead actress. Speaking to the survivors, I learned that they think we need this movie because now they won't have to tell their story themselves, but they can say, OK, you can go and watch the movie and then maybe we can speak after that. Bernson plays 19-year-old Kaya, who, when we first meet her at the camp, turns to the camera and declares, you will never understand. The film is shot in a single take and follows Kaya as she runs and hides from the relentless sound of screams and gunshots and as she comes across the bodies of fellow campers. This single take lasts 72 minutes, the exact amount of time that they were under attack. A lot of the survivors expressed... The time it took, those 72 minutes, it felt like an eternity. Director Eric Popper. So I felt that I needed to see if I could be able to do it in one take, to bring the audience into that sort of brutality without any chance for really leaving the story. While based on survivors' testimonies, Kaya's character is purely fictional. Popper did not want to favour one survivor's story over another. Popper acknowledges it makes for harrowing viewing. There were a lot of objections towards the film while we were preparing the film. And I do respect that some of the young people out there and their parents will have a hard time seeing this film. Popper held private screenings for the bereaved and out of consideration for them, no footage, not even a trailer, is being released until the film premieres in Norway next month. Lisbeth Reineland chairs a national support group for victims of the attack. Many victims are told that they have to forget and go on with their lives. And this movie really shows why that is so hard. Reuneland lost her own 18-year-old daughter that day. She says that while some victims feel uneasy about the film, others see it as helpful. The reason for doing this is telling the story that for so many people has been impossible to tell. 24-year-old survivor Ingrid Entererud, who worked as an advisor on the film, addressed a press conference at the Berlin Film Festival. When I try to explain what I experienced, I'm only able to tell it from a distance. And that's where the art of film can tell a story in another way that speaking cannot. And also it's to capture and to show what right-wing extremism can lead to. This is hate in its purest form. And as a society, we have to stand together against that. While uncomfortably immersive, the film is not graphically violent. And the audience sees the attacker in the distance on just one fleeting occasion. When we finally hear the sound of a helicopter overhead, one of the campers declares it's the press, not the police. A bitter reminder of how the media got to the scene before the rescue services. Director Eric Popper. The media carries its own responsibility of how you are treating the survivors, of course during an attack but also after an attack. What the film doesn't deal with at all is what happens afterwards when the media is standing on the land side waiting for them crazy to get their comments.
The film cuts to black as a local resident steers a boat full of injured teenagers to the mainland. Almost seven years on, the film tries to reclaim the story for the victims and reminds the audience that thoughts and prayers are more than just a tweet. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. It isn't the issue of gun control. What we need is white supremacy control. The Southern Poverty Law Center is just out with its annual Year in Hate and Extremism report, which claims if 2016 was the year of white supremacists being electrified by the rise of Donald Trump, his inauguration in January 2017 sent them into a frenzy. The result, according to the report, last year saw an increase in the number of hardline anti-LGBTQ groups, anti-Muslim groups, neo-Nazi groups, and others. Joining me now to discuss who made the list and what we might do about it is Richard Cohen, president of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Brian, for having me. So this Year in Hate and Extremism report identifies 954 hate groups, an increase of 4% from 2016. Now, people may hear those numbers and think, well, gee, 4%, that's not that big. That could be natural fluctuation, is it? I don't think so. You know, it's actually a 20% increase since 2014. We had seen a decrease in the number of organized hate groups as people were basically uh, retreating to the web to get their fill of hate. But really in 2015, with the Trump campaign, we saw in kind of white supremacists coming out of the woodwork, coming into the streets and organizing. And so I think that's the trend that we're seeing. And the SPLC, your group, documented some 300 incidents of racist flyers being distributed on more than 200 campuses. Flyers? You, you this- know, recruiting flyers, uh, all kinds of things. And, of course, you know, we had some uh, high-profile white supremacist going to college campuses on speaking tours. You know, they see colleges as like bastions of multiculturalism. So it's an effort to stick, you know, poke a a stick in the eye of what they see as the liberal establishment. And they love it when people protest, right? This is like the Milo Yiannopoulos tours. Milo and and Richard Spencer, you know, and, you know, it's the – they love it when the students protest. And, you know, what we see on the streets, of course, is that – a younger and younger breed of white supremacists, you know, the ones in khakis and polo shirts. Like in Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Charlottesville was the biggest white supremacist rally we had seen in decades, and it really it really showed the incredible energy within the white supremacist movement at this time. How do you explain the appeal of something as old as, let's say, neo-Nazism or KKKism to people who are – Young, because we have on the one hand the millennials and younger uh, being clearly the most liberal generation currently alive in American politics. And yet your report says in 2017, being a white nationalist suddenly seemed hip. No longer was it just a movement made up of old men wearing Klan robes or swastika armbands. Look, a lot of people are looking for some, some identity, something to hold on to. And, you know, for many people, their race, their identity is the key. And we're not seeing that just in this country. We're seeing it throughout, you know, kind of Western Europe where we've seen a tremendous rise in uh, very hard right uh, parties, you know, reflected, of course, in the Brexit vote. 
and your report says white supremacist groups did experience a net loss of one kind of chapter, largely because Ku Klux Klan groups fell dramatically from 130 to 72 in 2017. It's just not hip to wear a Klan robe anymore, you know, as, you know, compared to the Richard Spencers and the new version. Also, you know, we had seen this big increase in whites in, in Klan groups in 2015 in response to the efforts to take down Confederate flags. We had actually uh, documented about 300 pro-Confederate flag rallies. So some of this drop that we're seeing is just kind of a loss of momentum from the Klan. Some of it is people migrating to a new form of white supremacy called the alt-right. Have you found an increase in actual violence since Trump was inaugurated. Certainly, we hear a lot of stories. We've heard them on the phones, on on this show. Um, I've read them and seen them described elsewhere where, you know, at a a very, um, I I don't know, it seems like a very widespread thing where groups of white kids might start taunting groups of black or immigrant kids with Trump, 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 and things like that. How much are you documenting, if you are documenting this, that it's turning into violence. Well, look, after the uh, Trump was elected, in the first 10 days, we documented about 900 uh, hate incidents. About 30, 40% of them bore Mr. Trump's signature. What I mean by that is like graffiti, for example, make America white again. Uh, other studies have shown that in major American cities in 2017, we saw about a 20% increase in the level of hate crimes. One of the problems is that hate crimes in our country are tremendously unre- underreported. The Justice Department last year said there were something like 5,600 hate crimes. The Bureau of Justice Statistics estimates that the true number is closer to a quarter million. Hmm. So it's it's not an easy thing to get a handle on. Plus, we should say that there doesn't have to be physical violence for somebody to be impacted by hateful behavior that may be emboldened because Trump seems to wink at it or, uh, you know, embolden it in one way or another. Um, uh Words can hurt people. A hostile environment can hurt people. Absolutely. You know, Representative Mark Sanford, a Republican from South Carolina, said something very interesting. He said Trump had unearthed some demons. And and, and I think that's absolutely true. He's given people license, unfortunately, to act on their worst instincts sometimes. And let's take another phone call. Here's Lisa in Harlem. Lisa, you're on WNYC. Hi. Yes, um, I heard through the grapevine that the Southern Poverty Law Center took Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam off the list of hate groups. Is that true? No, it's not true. Uh, and in fact, our report documents that what we call black nationalist group groups have actually grown in the last year in response to the growth of white supremacy. And if I could take a second to explain... We talk about black nationalist groups. We're not talking about groups like Black Lives Matter, you know, civil rights organizations that are trying to attack uh, systemic racism. We're talking about these very fringe groups that have no political power that, you know, kind of demonize all white people, the anti-Semitism like you come out of Farrakhan's mouth. And, you know, if you read the final call, Farrakhan's newspaper, which, you know, I read regularly, 
you see uh, that they have taken Trump and said to their membership, you see, we were right all along. White supremacy is always going to live in this country. We need to separate. So it's not a big surprise that we've seen a backlash from the black nationalist groups and seen them groan. And the Nation of Islam is is still on our list with about 85 groups, I think. It isn't the issue of gun control. What we need is white supremacy control. And those of you listening yesterday at this time heard us talk to Richard Cohen, the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center, about their new report documenting an increase in the number of hate groups in America since Trump was inaugurated as president. But how did the white nationalist movement evolve to the point where it ditched the hoods for khakis and polos and wound up with a president they actually really like in the White House? Journalist Vegas Tenold has been following the white nationalist group since 2010, and he has a new book called Everything You Love Will Burn. He chronicles his time spent traveling and embedding with various factions of the so-called alt-right and profiles their quest to make white nationalism not only more popular, but what they see as respectable again, if it was ever respectable. Vegas, welcome to WNYC. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Um, So is your thesis kind of different from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I think sees them as a rising threat? And and you see them as, you know, heinous, despicable, deplorable, um, but we pay too much attention to them at our peril? Well, I, I think, you know, the the report that just came out from the SPLC says that they've been a – they're an increasing presence. They've, they've grown and I, and I think that's true. But I think also 2017 has shown that although they've – you know, they've certainly become a movement of some, some force – they still don't know what to do with that power. They don't know how to translate it into anything but the same kind of group of malcontents that they've always been. So sure, they're a presence, but we don't really know what that that means yet. And my point in the book is that we also have other forms of white supremacy in this country that we need to pay equal, if not more, attention to. So if we pay too much attention to the remnants or the new generation of uh, the Klan and neo-Nazi groups and things like that, then we might risk ignoring deep embedded structural racism, which affects more people of color day by day? Sure, sure. But I mean, I think it's important that you think about both things. And I certainly wouldn't have spent the last seven years with uh, the neo-Nazis and the KKK and the skinheads if I thought they weren't a thing. Um, they're points of view have informed uh, a lot of the opinions and ideology that came out of the 2016 election. And, you, you know, you hear things that I heard in, in Klan rallies and neo-Nazi rallies in 2011 being said, you know, in the halls of power now. So I think absolutely, if you want to try to understand the form of nationalism we are seeing around us today, then it's important to see where it's coming from. And it's important to try to understand its most extreme incarnations. What did you set out to look for? Uh, with your research for this book that people didn't already know about white nationalism in America? Well, for me, it was a very – it was a kind of a personal project. I was just curious because, you know, the idea of national socialism is such an anachronism. It's such a – it is the most hated ideology in the Western world. That's sort of what Nazi stood for, right? National National socialism. socialism. Yeah, and – 
and when I found this group, which was the first group I started following, the National Socialist Movement, these were people in 2011 America who would march under a swastika. And I thought, why would anyone ever do that? I mean, why would anyone choose the most hated uh, piece of art, piece of graphic, the swastika, and, and choose to march under it? So I wanted to find out why, why they were willing to bear the considerable social cost of being an out-and-out Nazi and so I was kind of just curious. And what did you learn about why people would do it? Was it for different reasons than you might have expected? A lot of the reasons kind of were expected. I mean, people want to belong to something and people feel lost and people feel adrift and they, and, and some people feel angry and they and and they want to belong and and you know there's a sense of to these groups there there can be a sense of there can be a sense of family, but you know I think the underlying reason is racism. It is a profound fear and distrust of, of others. Um, we were just talking this week about the false accusation against one of the students from the high school in Parkland, Florida, who came out for gun control afterwards, uh, David Hogg. Uh, rumors started circulating about him, a vicious intentionally started rumor by someone that he wasn't really a student in the high school. He was a so-called crisis actor uh, trying to capitalize for either personal gain or you know, leftist political purposes on the tragedy at the high school. Well, you have something in your book where a white nationalist tells you about Sandy Hook victims in Connecticut allegedly being actors, right? Yeah. Well, their worldview very much depends on the notion that they're under siege and that kind of everything that happened is has a nefarious underlying reason and that they're kind of so so all efforts of of gun control or liberal policies have to be the result of of some nefarious force working against against white people so this kind of conspiratorial mindset is very is very very common kkk neo nazi white supremacist are they all the same they they are and they and they aren't kind of I, I I get the impulse that you just want to call everyone a neo Nazi and that's you know kind of fine but I also wanted my book to be you know if not scholarly then certainly journalistically um, sound sound yes exactly so so to me it kind of made sense to differentiate a little bit and the Klan doesn't necessarily uh, agree with the National Socialists the neo Nazis on all things they certainly don't agree with the skinheads. Uh, and this becomes a lot of isms and sort of a lot of small differences to those of us on the outside. But I, I wanted as much as I could to explain this. And I feel like terminology does matter. And, and you know, an example of that is the term the, term, the alt-right, which kind of doesn't mean anything. But it implies that this is this new alternative form of nationalism, whereas their ideology and you know their ideas are just kind of – the same old hodgepodge of racism and nationalism that we've seen for, for decades. There's nothing, nothing new, and calling it something new can be misleading. And in fact, I think a lot of the news media has wised up to the term alt-right, and now if we say it at all, we say so-called alt-right. Because when you say alt-right, it sounds kind of friendly, kind of fun. It sounds like an indie rock radio format. Uh, it's alternative right, you know. Um, so who made that up and for what public relations purpose? Well, that was Richard Spencer who came up with that and I believe it was 2008. Uh, he, he, he bought the website altright.com, uh, I, I think it was. And I think for him, uh, it was about kind of differentiating himself within, within the movement. Uh, 
But when we in the media discovered, you know, Richard Spencer and his ilk in 2015, 2016, then we thought, all right, uh, wow, what, what, an, what an interesting term. I guess we'll, we'll use that. It becomes tempting. Rayon in the Bronx, you're on WNYC with Vegas Tenold, author of Everything You Love Will Burn. Hi, Rayon. Hi, how you doing? Good. Good, thank you for having me. Uh, long-time listener and third-time caller. Glad you're Quick in. question for your guest. Um, so these neo-Nazis and alt-right characters that we've been referring to, um, when they realize that Donald Trump is not the candidate they truly thought he was going to be, do you anticipate seeing more hardcore individuals come into the limelight? So is Trump the beginning of this or is he the end of this? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a very, that's a very, very good question. Um, so they have a very much when life gives you lemon, make lemonade way of thinking about this. And, you know, going into 2017, they were riding high and they thought Trump is our guy, which it turns out for various reasons that he, he wasn't. He disappointed them in a million small ways. Uh, which they kind of said, okay, well, he's our, he's our foot in the door. He's, he's not the guy we thought he would be, but uh, he's a proof of concept. He showed us that America is ready for uh, a leader with nationalist ideas. Uh, but I think we've seen throughout 2017, they've had several attempts at you know, giving speeches and rallies that have all descended you know, sometimes tragically into, into violence. And many of my sources have told me that, you know, there's no use in being political anymore. Matthew Heimbach told me after Charlottesville that if you want to be a nationalist, you have to get your helmet, you have to get your shield and your armor and get ready to march in the street. So I think absolutely, as they become more disappointed in the way Trump turned out and in the way, you know, society deals with them, I think you'll see a much harder, harder edge to their nationalism. So are they disappointed with the way Trump is turning out, a lot of our listeners might be surprised to hear that. I think they are. And I mean, certainly, you know, one of the first things he did was he lobbed a bunch of missiles at Syria. Uh, that was early in his administration. And th they were disappointed for a few reasons. I mean, he said he wouldn't start a war. They'd see Assad as a, as a, as a leader in, in, a, in a region full of barbarians. And also, it was a betrayal in their eyes towards Putin, who they, you know, love very much. Um, then there was his his budget that took a lot of money from the Appalachia App Appalachian region. So you know, for various reasons, they've uh, they've been disappointed. But then you know, every time he says stuff like he'll end he'll end DACA, and every time he builds the wall, then they're on his side again because that's all they really care about. They say that he can you know he can he can be the worst president ever if he builds that wall. It'll be worth it. It's Black History Month, and we're looking at some of the history in our community. WNYC's Danny Lewis reports that one of America's first free black communities was founded right in the heart of Brooklyn. Back when Brooklyn was not much more than a collection of farms and rolling hills, the town of Weeksville was one of New York's largest black communities. Nestled in modern-day Crown Heights, the town was founded in the 1830s by a longshoreman named James Weeks, just after the state banned slavery. Rob Fields is executive director of the Weeksville Heritage Center. He says the town's location outside of Manhattan made it a safe haven. You had to take a boat to get here, and get across the river and, you know, they could build a life and they could be in a community that was largely free from racially inspired violence. 
At the time, black freemen were allowed to vote if they owned property. And after a few families settled in the area, more followed. Field says at its peak in the 1880s, about 500 people lived in Weeksville. There were two churches that came out of this community, one of which is still right down the road from us. Um, There was an orphanage. There was a retirement home. There was colored school number two. There was a baseball team, a newspaper. As more and more people moved from Manhattan, Weeksville was absorbed by the growing city. Today, just three original buildings are still standing. But Fields says they can play an important role in teaching young black New Yorkers how deep their ties to the city go. It adds nuance and depth to their understanding. And even for adults, you know, a lot of adults don't know about the history of this community. Danny Lewis, WNYC News. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. You are about to hear a special edition of The Current from Halifax. And a warning, in the first few minutes, you will hear offensive and racially charged language. There used to be a, a, like a little rink there, right? A little, we, we made it. We used to go skating there in the wintertime. And we'd skate until we, <laughs> our parents come to get us. We, we were so late getting home those nights. Oh, my dear. So what I'm looking at over here, what did it look like when you were a kid? What was there? Old cars, clothes, tin barrels, whatever you could, you could think of, of, old food, everything. The stump is now closed, but we don't know if it's been closed properly. We don't know what's seeping into the ground. You're looking at years and years of chemicals and garbage, everybody's household garbage, every industry that's in the community's garbage. You call this environmental racism. Why do you use that term? Because it's right in the middle of our community. It's in, it's in our community. And it's, it's not in the other community. The North End is uh, the, where the white settlers where the white people live. This is where the black people live. At first, we were drinking the water. And then Herbie said, you folks is going to get cancer drinking that water. And I said, well, we, we must stop this. And we did, and we bought water. While I sat in school, a guy in the road said, and he's gone. And Roy. Who else is gone? <laughs> the whole neighborhood. Yeah. The whole neighborhood. I'm I am the oldest one. You are the oldest man left. Yes, you are. Yeah. I never realized that. Never realized that. It was horrible. We had couldn't open the window. You couldn't open your doors. You had to keep your windows shut all night long. Couldn't put the clothes on the line? No. Have to wait till night because the smoke would be in the clothes, and it would be terrible. A lot of people made a complaint about it, but nothing stopped them. They went ahead and built it anyway. To me, it was like we were nothing. How do I put it? Well, we were niggers. We were black, and it didn't matter. We could live through anything. 
people you just heard live in Shelburne, a community of fewer than 2,000 people tucked into the top of an inlet on North Scotia's South Shore. And they say that in that small place, they are living with a legacy of racism, of government decisions that forced them and generations of their black neighbors to grow up in the environmental shadow of a messy, smoldering, smelly landfill site. They worry it has contributed to cancers and early deaths, but they do not have and cannot get the full studies to back up with hard science what they have been seeing and living for decades. In a moment, we'll hear more from them and from a sociologist who has been tracking and mapping the locations of landfills and industrial sites in Nova Scotia and has raised questions about the patterns she sees. And we aren't stopping there. This is the first of the current three-city tour called Facing Race, and we have come to Nova Scotia because of the rich and complicated history of African Canadians here. Nova Scotia's black communities can trace their roots to the 1700s, when Africans, victimized by the slave trade, were brought here in chains, and others on the other side of the U.S. border, also enslaved, were promised their freedom and land to settle by Britain if they fought on the British side during the American Revolution. Of course, the black loyalists never received all that they were promised, and though black communities grew and thrived, they also suffered. Today, their descendants can still point to the consequences of those early days in the political and social reality in which they now live. We will hear about belonging, gentrification, and the changing face of historically black communities in this province, We'll also hear about violence against black women and girls and ask what is missing in the growing conversations around sexual violence. We are in Halifax before a packed house in the sparkling and splendid new Central Library. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti, and this is a special edition of The Current, Facing Race. We're going to start with two people you heard briefly in our opening tape. They both live in the south end of Shelburne. Louise DeLille is the co-founder of the South End Environmental Justice Society, SEED. Lucy Nickerson is her neighbor and friend. They call their neighborhood a community of widows. And they say most of the men in their community have died of cancer. Hello to you. Hello to you. Louise, the last voice we heard on that tape from my visit this week to Shelburne belongs to your mom, Ruth. Belongs to my mother. How old is she? She's 85 years old in March. She talked about not being able to hang her clothes on the line because of the smoke and the ash from the dump. Were they burning stuff all the time? The dump was a fire all the time. And when it was burning, the smoke was so thick it was like fog. And I remember as a child her saying, I can't wash again today when I have to wait till the night when, when, that, fog, when that smoke is gone so I can put these clothes on the line. That's one of the things that sticks in my mind from that time. And she, she would always say, that someday someone's going to put an end to this. I remember she used to say that someday someone will put an end to this. And I never dreamed it would be me trying to. I <laughs> am. So when you were a kid, what do you remember about that dump? Oh, my goodness, Santa Maria. The smell was so... I can't express it in words what that smelled like when it was a fire and the smoldering every day. And the, 
the rodents, the rats, and it was terrible. How close did you live to it? Well, less than a quarter of a mile. It was just in the yard, basically in our backyard, because the hoses here, a little bit of woods, and and then the dump, and was our playing area where we played as children. And the trucks would then come in all the time too, right? Yeah, there was always um, traffic up and down that road going to the dump, either from one of the shipyards dumping their stuff, one of the, the, the industries down there, the Navy base dumping their stuff, the hospital dumping its stuff. Everything bad was placed in the South End, of course. All the garbage from the people that lived in the community, old clothes, magazines, old food from stores that had to be thrown out, all went to the dump and then set a fire. So you can imagine what that smelled like. Lucy Nickerson, what do you remember about growing up near there? I can remember, um, I had my granddaughter there one day, and I said, uh, we were baking a cake. And I said, put these in the garbage for Nanny. She says, there's no garbage bag in there, Nanny. Seven rats. Seven rats were in there. And I'm screeching and hollering to Herbie to come and get the, do something with them. And so he got a pellet gun, and it was the only thing we could do with him and that. But it was always rats around. It was nothing you could do. Lucy, what's been the impact of all this on your family? Well, I have no son. My son died in September at the age of 45 with multimeloma. It wasn't a pretty sight. It was about the worst thing I could have ever put myself through. At the end of it, I just walked over to him and I said, William, Mum's going home. I said, and she's going to get Kayla's supper. I said, and if you want to go, I said, you go. Mum loves you and we will meet again. So it hasn't been very good for me. He was diagnosed just over a year before he died, huh? Yeah, a little better than a year. We asked the Nova Scotia Health Authority for cancer statistics for the south end of Shelburne. There are no numbers specifically for the south end of town, but for the town of Shelburne in general, the proportions of three cancer types appear to surpass those recorded for Nova Scotia as a whole, bladder, kidney, and multiple myeloma. There are not hard numbers, but you lost your son to that very cancer. Yes, I did. And you both live in what you call a community of widows. Why do you call it that? Because it's mostly men that dies. Yeah, we're the, we've lost the majority of men in our community. I mean, the, the next generation out from our generation, Lucy's son is a rare example, but the majority of men, like my father's generation, have all died of uh, cancers. And the majority of people that are dying of cancers are dying of multiple myeloma in the South End, which in Atlanta, like it is a rare cancer. And for it to be in such a, a, big, a large cluster in such a small spot is very suspicious to me. So why was the dump put there? It was put there because it was easy for them to put it there without any repercussions from it. It was easy for them because they knew my father's generation, my mother's generation, were not going to fight them against it. They, they never had a voice 
They never had a voice to stop it. It was put there because we were black. They closed the dump officially in 2016? Yes, they did. What led to that? We decided that we were going to take some action. It was time we took action because people were dying too quickly. And um, we said, well, the first thing we got to do is call the Nova Scotia environment and find out if what they're doing now there is um, something that we can get it close by what they're doing now. And they were dumping white metal there at the time and oil barrels and stuff like that. And Nova Scotia environment found that they had reason to send a letter to the town to demand that they clean it up. And from that, after, after that, we met with the town and told them that we wanted them to close the dump. And finally, Mayor Matatal closed it because we, we insisted on it being closed and we were going to go as far as we had to go to have it closed. This is a good time to bring in our third guest sitting up with us here. Um, Ingrid Waldron is a sociologist a professor at Dalhousie University. She is also the director at the Enrich Project, which stands for Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequalities, and Community Health Project. Welcome. Thank you. I have a couple of things I want to ask you. First of all, I I do want to say we invited the mayor of Shelburne, Karen Matatal, to be here today. She was not available. She sent a statement. I'm going to read part of it. And I'm quoting here. The council has previously offered to assist with the testing of water and soil to further inform consideration of community concerns. However, there was not support for this. The town remains willing to assist with any testing and would work with residents and other interested parties to reduce costs, end quote. How do you interpret what the mayor is saying there? Well, it's good to hear. I mean, it's the first time I've heard that. Um, I actually met with the mayor when I visited uh, Shelburne uh, with some scientists in 2016. And she came to me privately and she said that do you realize that um, a number of African Nova Scotians in this community smoke? So I got a sense from that conversation that she was very doubtful about the issue. So I'm extremely happy to hear that she's willing to collaborate with the community, and I know Louise is interested in collaborating with her. You know, neither the mayor nor the town councillor for your area, Rick Davis, were available to see us in Shelburne this week. If I could have seen them, I would have asked, why do you need other people to do the testing. Why isn't government taking responsibility for this? Government's not necessarily responsible for water testing of wells. It's responsibility of individual communities to do that. Uh, I think my argument is if industries or dumps or landfills are placed in communities, communities that don't want uh, those waste sites, then for me, they are accountable. I think, I think government is accountable. But in the meantime, I think it's important, as people are dying... Uh, that something is done. So we've taken the step, many of us, uh, some scientists, uh, geologists, Fred Bonner and Wilbur Menendez, who's a chemistry professor, a science professor at Nova Scotia Community College, we've taken the initiative to address some of the concerns by initiating a water testing project because people are dying. You do research around environmental racism. How do you define environmental racism? Environmental racism is a term that was coined in the early 1980s by Benjamin Chavez, and it's characterized by the disproportionate location of environmental contaminants 
in communities of color and indigenous communities and low-income white communities. It's also very similar to what Louise mentioned. It's the lack of power that many of these communities, because they're racialized, because they're low-income, the lack of power they have for resisting against the siting of these facilities in their communities. And it's also about the lack of representation of these communities on committees, boards, regulatory bodies, individuals who have a say in where uh, these sites are located. So when you look at, envir- look at environmental racism, you need to look at the full breadth of environmental racism. And I would say that those three issues characterize environmental racism in the United States and in Canada. We did contact the Nova Scotia Department of the Environment to ask them about this. Um, and I'm going to quote uh, part of what they sent us. We take the issue of environmental racism seriously. Government has been taking action on initiatives to address disparities, racism, and systemic discrimination that African Nova Scotians have faced for generations. There is more work to do, but we are on the right path forward in our journey of healing and resolution. This is a priority for the government of Nova Scotia. End quote. Do you see the Nova Scotia government making this a priority? Nova Scotia government is not making this issue a priority. In 2014 and 2015, I visited 14 government departments, including Nova Scotia Environment, and no one was interested in taking up this issue. While they agreed that they needed to be more transparent and accessible in terms of sharing information to communities, none of the individuals that I visited were interested in taking up this issue, so they are not interested in it. More so, they don't have the lens, the understanding of environmental racism. And when I look at environmental assessments, that's a process that you use to decide where a waste dump or landfill is placed. They don't have the understanding, the critical understanding, the sociological lens to understand why placing certain waste dumps or landfills in certain communities is problematic, particularly because you're placing them in communities that are dealing with existing vulnerabilities relating to racism, colonialism, class, income, education, lack of resources, um, food insecurity, and income insecurity. So unless they have that lens, which is a sociological lens, then the individuals in Nova Scotia environment and other agencies in government don't have a full understanding of this problem. Ingrid Waldron, you have mapped locations of industry and landfill sites in proximity to black and indigenous communities in the province. We'll put that up on the screen here so we can see what you've found. Uh, This is also available at cbc.ca slash The Current, and our Facebook Live audience is able to find it on our Facebook page. Tell us what we are looking at. This is a map that was developed by a health geography student, Bo Aarons in 2016, and he mapped the location of waste dumps close to indigenous and African Nova Scotian communities across the province. So what you'll find is that waste dumps on the map are close to Shelburne, uh, Lincolnville, Sunnyville, Upper Big Trachity, Monastery, Mulgrave, Trenton, Birchtown, Beachville, Lucasville, etc. And you'll also find uh, landfills, waste dumps close to Indigenous communities like Pictou Landing First Nation, which is, to me, the worst case of environmental racism in Nova Scotia, one of the worst in Canada, 
Acadia First Nation, Eskasoni First Nation, Member Two First Nation, Millbrook First Nation, etc. That's this a is, long list. It's well, it's longer. And I was going to say, yeah. etc. Tells us it's even longer. <laughs> it's important to stress, though, that this is simply another tool in the toolkit. For example, if I were to visit government to make my case. I would take my data, I would take my qualitative research based on the focus groups that Louise did, for example, I would take quantitative data, I will take this map, and I'll take other information to make a case about environmental racism. The problem with government is they, is they want to connect a particular landfill site and a contaminant to a particular cancer, for example, multiple myeloma, for example. You can never do that. You can never definitively say that a particular waste dump is causing a particular type of cancer. What you can say is the probability is very high that it is, which for me is sufficient. For government, apparently it's not. Okay. I'm uh, Just um, before we end, I want to go back to Louise and Lucy. What do you want to see happen now? Oh, I want to see somebody come in there to test our water to make sure that our water's clean because there's town water in the north end, but not in the south end. Like Ingrid said, you can't prove that cancer is caused by certain things, but I want to know what we've been exposed to when it comes to what's been dumped there. We are talking really about one community, but Ingrid, you've made the point this is an issue across the province. And across the country. Thank you, all of you, for bringing it forward to us. Thank you. That is Louise DeLille, Lucy Nickerson. They are lifelong residents of the south end of Shelburne. And Ingrid Waldron is a sociologist and a professor at Dalhousie University. And as you heard, that's where she's doing her research on environmental racism. Thank you very much. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 24th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in broadcast specifically designed for victims of white supremacy to share their thoughts, views, counter-racist suggestions on how to solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. A few things before we get to folks who dialed in. Uh, number one, we are listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive. You can visit my blog, racism notes.blogspot.com. 
racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, <clears throat> drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, again, with the flood, I uh, have moved a few times, so definitely send an email to confirm uh, if you want a physical mailing address to send any support. Uh, humongous thanks and appreciation to all of the cows listeners who have supported nine years of keeping us on the air from cows listeners uh, i hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy a uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have <clears throat> supported uh thought about us uh prayed for gusty specifically uh, with the flood issue and, you know, hoping that that gets resolved and we're able to move back in sometime soon, uh, hopefully before the summer. We'll see. Uh, but thanks to all the folks who have supported uh, about that as well. Much appreciated. A couple things I wanted to share uh, before we get to the callers. I guess one thing that I will uh, get in, it's been nine years of broadcasting. Uh, some things have stood out a few lessons, point out a few things over the next uh, few weeks that, you know, recollections, I guess you might call them, or lessons, reflections. Uh, one of the things I think I've uh, said for years now, uh, almost the full decade or so that we've been on, uh, if you like the program, so what? If you don't like the program, so what replace white supremacy with justice? And I think many of my curmudgeonly acts over the years uh, requesting that people not call me brother, a good bit of that is just because of the system of white supremacy. I've been heavily victimized. I'm kind of a, uh, a grumpy slave uh, on the plantation. Very much so. Uh, but also, some of that is just because uh, in the business of counter-racism, uh, it's not personal. Mr. Fuller says that all the time, quoting from uh, one of those popular flicks. Uh, and it's not personal. And I just, you know, say that uh, when I say that, you know, not to call me brother. And <clears throat> if you like the program, you know, so on and so forth. When I say that, you know, it's it's kind of a reminder to myself about the importance of being codified and uh, I think as the late Christopher Wallace said, uh, there is no guarantee that they're going to love you next week. And I have seen way too many instances, way too many instances, way too many instances where Monday a black person was being cheered and they got all the adulation. Right on, brother. Right on, brother. You you get to Tuesday. Sometimes you can get to Monday evening. And it's that coon is the I have seen that way, way, way too many times. And it's just very important for me, if it for anybody else, for me to be reminded, regardless of what adulation, what cheers may come at this very moment, all of that can be gone and the business of counter-racism must go on. That's the critical component of why I've continued to say that for nine years now. Continuing, other things that I thought were really important, some of them from uh, the audio clips that we just heard. 
that last segment, again, over nine years, we have done a I have done a very poor job with focus with regards to not focusing more broadcasts and attention on what is called environmental racism, because that is hugely important worldwide. Uh, the segment that uh, we just heard about what's happening in Canada specifically, I thought there were so many things that stood out in that segment. Uh, number one, the importance of words. That word community, Mr. Fuller in his word guide, uh, he recommends strongly not using the word community. And he gives the reason you cannot be a victim, a subject to racism, white supremacy and say that you have a community. You don't have a community if race soldiers can come and dump filth and drugs and toxic waste and military waste and anything else they want, if they can come and dump this where you live for decades and there's nothing you can do about it, that is not a community. You all are just victims of white supremacy who live in a trash heap. That's what they do to black people worldwide. And they said it exactly. They said it perfectly in the clip. We were niggers. We were black. The only thing I was reminded, I guess, this week for the anniversary broadcast, Dr. Kamal Kamban, he says, stated correctly, they're not doing this because we're black. They're doing this because they are white supremacists, racists, and they're just terrorizing black people. That is the correct way. It's not because we're black. It's because they, racist man, racist woman, racist child, because they are choosing to practice white supremacy and mistreat black people. Uh, I thought, uh, man, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, I so miss her as Black History Month, uh, really would have been great uh, to have her on the program and particularly to get her thoughts on that segment because they said that this spot in Nova Scotia, Canada is known as the Community of widows. That's what they said, even though the word community is incorrect, but put it in quotes, the community of widows. Uh, and they said because they're losing all of the males in this community of approximately 2,000 people or whatever it is. Uh, and you had the one victim, she said that she lost her uh, son uh, in all this. He died at the age of 45 from cancer. Uh, and I said, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she talked about uh, them tailoring and having uh, ethno specific uh, drugs, ethno specific warfare that uh, drugs or other types of uh, chemical biological attacks that target specifically black people or other folks could be according to the amount of melanin that you have or whatever that uh, whites were working to craft that type of technology. Could you have ethno and gender specific chemical and biological warfare for what I heard, if that's accurate, where it's the males specifically, the black males specifically that are dying off from this cancer in the community of widows until proven otherwise, this would be ethno and gender specific chemical and biological warfare. And again, I would so appreciate the input of uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I also thought we had uh, a listener some years back, I think it was 2015. They were talking about uh, some of the victims 
of the Charleston Nine, Dylan Stormroof, white identity extremist. They were saying that hearing some of the victims going to talk to white journalists, white people in general about this attack and how they felt, something about that kind of didn't made them feel something about it seemed incorrect. It seemed like racists still benefit. They get to be the ones to amplify, excuse me, to amplify the story. Uh, and then there seems to be kind of a consumption of black pain. Like, yes, come and I can be entertained. In fact, for people who were with us for the very short conclusion to the wisdom of psychopaths, Kevin Dutton had a very important portion yesterday in the segment where he said that a part of psychopaths uh, as opposed to empathizing and feeling bad when something <clears throat> incorrect happens, when someone is being abused, they view this and they derive pleasure from that. That is racist man, racist woman, racist child. They derive pleasure from seeing black suffering. Uh, I think that is uh, extremely important. And I think that just that came to mind when hearing because uh, they were like in front of a live audience and so you could hear you know people clapping and that sort of thing I, this was audio so i couldn't see but uh, i know the person doing the interview was white and if this was happening in canada i would be stunned if it was an audience full of people that looked like lapita nyango i mean maybe i guess that could be but i suspect there were probably some whites in the facility in the room uh, to have this story being told about the community of widows to an audience of whites just reminded me of our ma for whose entertainment shall we sing our agony. The one thing I'll get in uh, about Black Panther, a film which I have no intention of seeing uh, or talking about or anything else. I was at yoga class this week, of course, and uh, white women were there talking about Black Panther loudly before class and they were saying oh my gosh Scott saw Black Panther and he just cannot stop talking about it he's just been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and he's uh, lifting weights now and he said he's just so inspired uh, by the movie and oh man I'm going to see it too and they were just going back and forth and back and forth <laughs> I, I snickered in my head uh, about all of this and I said this is what I'm going to think from now on anytime that I hear commentary about Black Panther uh, and this being anything close to association with counter-racism or black liberation or anything constructive with regards to black people really talking about the film at all I'm going to think you sound just like those Seattle white chicks in my yoga class. That's what I'm going to think every time I hear anyone talking about Black Panther. Uh, I snickered to myself. That is the exact thought that I had that I had in my head the moment I heard them. Uh, and that's been exactly the way it's been uh, from that day forward. When I hear people talking about uh, and talking about it seriously, you sound exactly like those Seattle white chicks in my yoga class. With that, this is the compensatory call-in if we could refrain from metaphors. I think we heard one during the broadcast. Uh, they said, 
Oh, there was a great, there was a great, me- oh, unearthed some demons. That was in the sound clip where they were talking about President Trump. That was Mr. Cohen with the uh, Southern Poverty uh, Law Center, uh, where he said, yeah, Trump has unearthed some demons. I have no idea what that means. Did Trump have a shovel? Was he out <laughs> digging up somebody's property? Watch those metaphors. Uh, It's been my experience frequently. Uh, Racists, they will use metaphors, similes, comparisons to spread confusion. They will compare things that are not accurate. Uh, They will make these kind of statements that are very vague, that don't really share any accurate information at all. It's not very precise at all. Uh, They do this sort of thing deliberately. It is part of being a mass deceiver. Victims of white supremacy, non-white people, including Gus T. Renegade, we have been exposed to this behavior for years, many of us, and a lot of us, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions on some topics, uh, and as a result, sometimes in place of logic, we will substitute a metaphor, and that often just spreads confusion. Uh, If we sometimes... You just need to say, I need to think a little bit more so that I can get the logic to accurately articulate my thoughts. No problem. I do that myself. Uh, If we could not use metaphors, I will prompt about that. If we could just work to be explicit, exact about what it is that we want to say, that would be grand. Uh, If you could take about five minutes to share uh, whatever thoughts uh, that you have uh, once you get your first opportunity to speak. Once everybody gets at least one turn, uh, you should have ample time if you have additional questions or thought suggestion uh, that you want to share. Uh, I did also uh, just want to make sure folks heard the the first segment, Albino Affairs, the white concern uh, about the poor critters uh, who have white fur and don't have the ability to shift back to have darker fur and how they might uh, survive in an environment with less snow. It snowed in Seattle again today. Uh, How they might uh, survive in an environment with less snow. I thought that was significant. Albino Affairs would appreciate Dr. Welsing's commentary on that as well. And uh, the last quick comment that I will get in, uh, the remark that was said going back to that segment on uh, what they call environmental racism, uh, white terrorism in Canada, where they said that uh, if people making the decisions about where these dumps are going to be, if these people don't have the social justice lens, if they don't have the lens of the history of what's happened to black people and, and all of this, and to me that just, it sounds very similar to the notion that white people are ignorant, that if white people, if those people in Canada and Nova Scotia, if they had just gone to the white privilege conference, if they had just seen uh, enough of those documentaries, uh, if they had just read the right literature, then they wouldn't have done this as opposed to, no, these are race soldiers. This is what race soldiers do. This is what it means to be white. We look forward to opportunities to dump trash on niggers. Very different analysis about why this happens all over the world for years and years and years and what we do to solve this problem. With that, the number again, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like 
to participate. Uh, if anybody has black history commentary, like if you went to an event or anything of that nature, since I think this is our last compensatory call in for uh, Black History Month, Carter G. Woodson. If you have black history commentary uh, that you want to get in, that would be appreciated. Uh, if you have a hand up to participate, line should be open. If you could watch the background noise, if you know you're in a noisy environment and people have the television on or whatever the case may be, use your mute button. Uh, go ahead and say what you need to say for your five minutes and then mute your line. Uh, and then you can unmute yourself if you need to speak again. But that just helps preserve the quality of the broadcast. Uh, thank you kindly. Uh, folks with a hand up, proceed. Hey, Gus, how you doing this evening? Right poorly. Of course, of course, me as well. Um, this is Thomas. Um, yeah, I think um, what you just said and um, what, what stood, stood out to me um, in the commentary you made about being at yoga class is that white people will say they went, uh, a white male went to go see a movie uh, with a black superhero and the first thing he went home and did was started lifting weights. So that, that tells me the psyche of where white people are when they saw this movie. Um, I think environmental racism, like health racism, should be added to the people areas um, of people activity because um, um, there's so many cases of it. Um, just, you know, the lead plant, um, I'm sure it's Houston, Texas, with the mold, soon will become a big issue. It's just everywhere. Um, last Wednesday, um, let me just say, uh, they have 115 Catholic churches in um, Midtown Manhattan and Lower Manhattan. Um, 65 of them alone just start with the letter S. I looked it up. I was amazed. Um, either way, last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, you see all these white people with the crosses on their head. It's a real scary sight. Um, I, I will, every year it, it, it never astounds, you know, it astounds me how they'll get up early before they go to work to be on riding around on the train and walking around with a black cross on their head. Um, it's just, it's real scary. I don't know. Um, the Oslo shooting documentary, you know, to me, they were practicing white obfuscation right off the, well, I, they were just practicing white obfuscation by um, calling this event white wing extremism instead of white racist terrorism. Um, it, it just gives it a totally different um, texture when they call it white uh, wing extremism. It just it just doesn't seem right. Um, and, of course, that's in um, Europe, so totally different system, but uh, I'm a, I took this uh, little clip from an article uh, that came out um, a couple years ago, and um, it was about Anders Breving Bredick. Um, by American prison standards, Anders Breving Bredick, the Norway mass murderer who killed 77 people in 2011, is living in luxury. His cell has a treadmill, a computer, a private bathroom, and a PlayStation. But Norway courts ruled this week that the, the confinement amounts to inhumane, degrading treatment or punishment. Those captured comforts didn't make up for the fact that Brexit is kept in near solitary, um, solid, so, um, solid, solitary uh, confinement, um, the judge concluded. 
Um, Brevik sued the government over his prison conditions last month, arguing that he he was subject to torture because of the isolation. Um, I just felt like that should tell you the conditions that this gentleman, um, this mass murderer, as uh, white identity extremist is living in, and also sued and got better conditions. He even went as far, I have another article, but I couldn't find it, where he just lost. It was like five to four he lost the ability to go home on holidays. Um, I had to go to my kids, um, a place where they, they were going to be pro- probably going to high school next year. Um, the high school was established in, in, um, in, in it's the same grammar school they're going to or just the high school version. And um, I had to go through these metal detectors and um, x-ray machine. Um, you had to empty your pockets, take off your belt, take off your jewelry, your watches, your shoes. I don't know, like, it was like going through the airplane um, checkpoint or going to court. Um, and I just felt like, man, this is terrible that I would have to um, even consider sending my kids to this type of situation. But at the same time, this was a few weeks ago. When I saw the shooting, in my opinion, why aren't they doing this to these white kids? They're the ones shooting up the schools. Um, they, they'll go and lay you on the White House lawn and try to stop guns, guns from being out there instead of having um, metal detectors in their school. It's just something that I think that they don't want to subject white kids to. Um, black, identity, black identity extremists, um, these black nationalist groups. Um, I, I, I posted the list on BTR, and um, you had Eyes of Egypt and other Egyptian bookstores. Some of them aren't even physical places. They're just online bookstores. Um, you have the national, all the chapters of the Nation of Islam, all the chapters of the Israelites, all the chapters of the Nuwapians, all of the chapters of the Black Panther group, and the Black Rider Liberation Party, which I never even heard of, um, so I'm going to look them up. Um, but either way, I, none of these people are threats to the government. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, I, I just I, I had to laugh when I saw it. I mean, they have bookstores as um, black identity extremists. And the last thing I wanted to say was about the clip in Nova Scotia. Um, the, the person who was um, doing the talking was that a black person, Gus? Well, they had uh, several different people talking. Uh, the person that was doing the interview the for main the person. CBC, the the person conducting the interview, you mean, or the person being interviewed? Um, the one who was talking about the um, very detailed um, about what the, the history of what was going on, um, and then they started asking other people questions. Uh, if you're talking about the person that was being interviewed and talking about the history of uh, the environmental racism in the area, I think those are some of the black uh, residents. Uh, this segment, uh, I had the audio, not the video. Uh, so okay. I'm just going off of the audio cues. The main people that were being interviewed and talking about the details of the area, they were some of the black uh, residents. But the person doing the interview uh, was a white woman. Okay, I think it was the white woman. Um, the, you know, she did a, she showed all of the conditions that were wrong, the garbage, the rats, the cancer, 
Um, and, you know, it had the people point out some of those things as well. And then in the same sentence, she went on to say how the government isn't aware of environmental racism. And, I mean, you point out that it's only taking place in these people's areas. So how are they aware of this? This is Canada. So I, I just felt like um, she was practicing on white obfuscation, and I'll meet my line across. Appreciate that. I just wanted to point out for listeners really quick, because I had this happen to me before, where a film that I I thought was a documentary, and it turned out that it was not a documentary. This was just a regular old fabricated flick, uh, and it caused me great disappointment. So the film about Anders Breivik or about the shooting, it is not a documentary, not a documentary, just so that people don't get confused. Uh, and the other quick point, uh, the white chicks in my yoga class i don't know if scott is a white male uh scott wasn't there they were just talking about the impact that this film had on scott we'll say uh but i don't know it could have been scott could be a non-white male could be a white male don't know uh but they were talking about it very uh enthusiastically and the impact that it had on this male uh, i should have asked maybe <laughs> if they were talking about a, a white dude uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Maddie Hart? Yes, ma'am. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the listeners and callers as well. Uh, this is uh, HV. Uh, I think it was last week you stated that um, – or you asked if anyone can think of a movie within the last, I, I believe you said, 25 years or so that um, was worth seeing or that might be constructive. In my view, uh, Nate Parker's The, the Birth of a Nation um, was. I can't remember or think of anything that I saw that serves white supremacy or anything that white people would be happy about. Um, and I think that's why, that they, that's why they, they sabotaged it and um, – falsely accused him of rape. Um, and I also had a question, because um, I'll say, you know, as far as uh, Black Panther, I've just heard a lot of bad things in terms of the way that they, what they attempted to do, that they, they attempted to do some real um, brainwashing to us. And um, fortunately, one thing I'll say is it seems that the, the character that they tried to villainize that wanted to overthrow white supremacy, people actually related to him more. And uh, they, so the, the racists, they start getting black people at the root and at boss up to, uh, and probably other publications to, to run hit pieces or to, to, to write hit pieces on the, the character that everybody most related to, which was the, the person again, who wanted to, um, overthrow white supremacy. But the point is they did that, that movie was not constructive because of what they attempted to do and the brainwashing that they attempted to, to, um, to do to the masses, whereas the birth of a nation, the the plot and all of that seemed to be, you know, just very constructive. So I would, um, I personally recommend that movie. But I, I had a, a quick question for you, which is, do you do um, speaking engagements like uh, Mr. Fuller and uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing uh, used to do? And if so, how does one go about booking you, and how does one uh, go about even attending 
a possible um, speaking engagement that you do in their area. And I understand also if that's something that I need to drop an email about, but I just, you know, was asking. So uh, thank you for taking my call, and I'll mute my line. For sure. Uh, I think uh, with the film, I think Emmy, some of our other listeners, they also had great things to say about Nate Parker's birth, uh, The Birth of a Nation uh, that came out last year. I have not seen that. I don't do slave uh, flicks. That's just another uh, general part of my code. And uh, I don't think I'm willing to break that even for Nate Parker. I'm just totally done with uh, films of any nature that are about the uh, shackling of Negroes. Uh, I have reached my saturation point. Uh, for speaking, uh, I have done that before. Uh, it was not. I've done that locally. I've spoke at uh, the University of Washington a few times and some other engagements. Uh, I would probably be willing to do it if I was going to be talking about racism, white supremacy. If I thought it would be constructive, I'd probably be willing to do. So if you drop me an email until justice at gmail.com, until justice at gmail.com, and uh, we can discuss the particulars. Uh, I reckon if you're in the Seattle area, I'm going to try and hit it. They had this workshop that's supposed to last for weeks uh, on into the springtime uh, at the yoga studio or one of the yoga the studios that I have been uh, frequenting, and it says on the flyer that no person. That's your line is breaking up. I can't hear uh, you at all. We'll say two hundred dollars just for a prop. I'll see if I can uh, uh, bring back and and correct if I. Breaking up. Is it just me? Can't hear anything, Gus. Yeah. yeah Gus, I can't hear you. Okay. Uh, should be back. Uh, am, am I being heard? Can people hear me? Yes. Yes, but it's okay. still kind of breaking up. Let's see. I'll just do a check. Uh, testing, testing. Am I being heard? You're good. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're having a workshop. If you're in Seattle, they're having an unpacking whiteness workshop. I'm going to try to attend that where they're supposed to be talking about what it, they said specifically what it means to be white. And they said that no non-white person would be denied entry. So if you're here and you want to attend, you should be able to go. I can forward the uh, untiljustice at gmail.com. I can forward you the uh, the website, they have an address. You can just go see all the information, the address, and all that. I think it's Wednesday. This coming Wednesday is when it starts. Other folks we have not heard at all? May I ask a quick follow-up? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. We'll get your follow-up, and then we'll get the mail caller. Okay. Um, I'm not in the Seattle area. I wish I was, but I just wanted to quickly ask the recordings that you that you referenced earlier about the University of Seattle or just any other recordings you've done, interviews, any of that. Is that online? Is that recorded? Or uh, I think different interviews uh, uh, that I've done on other people's uh, programs. Uh, some of them are in the the podcast for the cows here. Uh, I think uh, there are. I think there's audio recordings of some of the times where I spoke at other different engagements that people had. I think even one of the ones that I did at the University of Washington, I think there might be video uh, online uh, somewhere here and there. 
here and there. Okay, thank you. I'm in my line. Yes, ma'am. For sure. Mail caller, thank you for your patience. Um, um, greetings, Gus. Greetings, listeners and callers. Um, I was just touching on a couple of the topics. I did. Um, I did have a, something to ask, uh, as well as a, to everybody that was listening, because I'm I'm curious to everybody's opinion as well. Um, in one of the actual segments, it was speaking about what would happen if Donald Trump is just the beginning of what's soon to come down the pipeline, and from what we've seen, from what I've personally seen, from what I've just been researching bit by bit, it to me it does look like he's just one of many to come down the pipeline. And I think we've known that from history, but I think it may just get worse. That's just one thing, and I'd like to lay that question out later on. Um, also, I'm located in New York, and um, there was a definitely, uh, I believe, a nice uh, situation where we had um, – I was able to go to BAM and see a comic book convention for mainly black comic book authors and illustrators. And these were up and coming brothers and sisters that were trying to push their, their, um, their work. Um, I think that was one of the spinoffs I, I see from the Black Panther movie that I could say was a positive. Like it's, it's good to see people trying to push their own work not trying to work with Marvel, not trying to work with these quote-unquote racist white supremacist groups. It was very positive. Um, also, to touch on something that Tom, one of the earlier callers, spoke about, um, I used to play basketball in Brooklyn, and I, used to, I actually went to the school that Christopher Wallace, the late Christopher Wallace, used to go to, which was called Sarah J. Hale. And the same instance occurred to me back then where they had metal detectors and signs posted up, no guns, no bats, no blades, no knives. And um, as weird as this may sound, when I went into that school, that was the funnest school that I had to play basketball in. But that school has since been torn down because downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn in, is in the middle of gentrification. So that school is now closed, and now there are more, quote-unquote, schools that are appeasing to whites downtown more than anything else. Um, also, I'd like to just point out that um, I, I wasn't aware about the, the town in Brooklyn, Weeksville. I was never aware of that. I found out about it just from listening right now. Uh, I'll see you to do some more research on that, but... It was definitely an eye-opener hearing that, um, and especially being in New York myself. Um, again, the, the question I just wanted to pose to anybody who may want to answer that, again, I'll reiterate in regards to uh, Trump being one of many to come, um, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, folks can answer uh, the question as we proceed. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if we have not heard from you at all, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. 
Hello, uh, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers, listeners. Um, so I a few things. One, listening to the clips that you had, uh, I do think environmental racism is a very important topic. I think, you know, especially uh, recently what we've seen in Flint um, and in other communities, I think it's 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 um, it's um, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry. Um, I think it's really indicative of this sort of um, sort of biological war that they're waging against us, especially black people. Um, I think that uh, the government, you know, this whole conversation about the government not knowing or not having, you know, this sort of social justice lens is um, – is inaccurate. I think that the government typically do know, I think in the case of Flint, and as well as what's going on here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the government here has known about lead poisoning in Milwaukee water for about two years, but it's only been spoken about in this past year uh, when the mayor was exposed. So I, I you know, again, it's it's that whole well, you know, if if only we knew better, uh, sort of attitude that I have a problem with. But um, as far as the HBCUs, I haven't seen that documentary yet. I've been meaning to check it out. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think that they're very important. I think we should be concerned about them closing. Uh, my grandmother worked as a maid from the time she was 12 to the time she got out of college. And she was only able to go to college because there was an HBCU. There was nothing else for her, you know, really in the 30s for a poor black girl from a coal mining town. Um, And that really changed her life. And it changed the lives of many black people over, you know, the past century or so. So I think those are incredibly important. I actually have a story about uh, racism that was practiced over the past couple of weeks uh, with me and a few other black, uh, non-white black females. Um, so I attend um, an AA meeting that was founded by black people but has slowly been infiltrated over the years by whites due to its great quality. Uh, Earlier this month, I was instructed by my sponsor, who was a black female, to take over the treasurer duties from a white female. I spoke to the white female about taking over the duties, and she said that she, quote, needed to get the books together and explained that a non-white, quote, unquote, biracial female had some contributions that she was waiting on. Um, As a side note, this biracial female is supposed to be the white female sponsor, and the biracial female and I are, are sponsored by the same black female. Um, so then my sponsor then went to the white female and she told her the same story. Um, I then told my sponsor, well, it doesn't sound like, you know, the quote unquote biracial female would do something like this because she's fairly conscientious. So maybe we should ask her. And we found out that the white female was lying. Um, so last Sunday, the white female turned over her duty, turned over the treasurer's duties. She attempted to disarm me with a smile, which I didn't return. She was very vague about the duties, and I had to ask questions like, "How is the rent paid? To whom? How is it assessed? Who's in charge of supplies, etc." Um, she became increasingly agitated, to which I said, "This is serious business." Uh, 
Uh, when it came time to count out the treasury, which should have been $482.86, she kept on counting out $479.86. Uh, she said, after several counts, oh, we're $2 short. I said, no, we're $3 short. So she laughed nervously and said, oh, you're right, you're right. Well, I have $3 in my purse. I must have given uh, another black female three extra dollars. She's supposed to get $25 for a special needs committee contribution. So she apparently, her, her story was that she gave her $28. Um, I suspect she was practicing racism. I think that not only was she practicing racism, I think she was probably stealing. Um, she lied to me and to another non-white black female, and she blamed you know, missing funds and books not being kept up uh, on two other non-white black females. So um, that's my story about racism this past week. And with that, I'll meet my line. Wow. That sounds like workplace racism there. That is uh, outsta- asking questions. We talk about that all the time. We've been talking about that for nine years. That is one of the best things you can do countering racism, asking questions when you're dealing with whites and having efficient questions so that you don't have to ask 500. You can ask 10 good ones and get all the information that you need. But excellent job asking questions. Excellent job not returning the smile. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing going about the business of counter racism. Phenomenal job. I'm glad you shared. And then not only practicing or just the multiple ways of her practicing white supremacy to do all this where she's probably stealing and everything else, trying not to give you all the info. And then she's going to blame it on these other victims of racism, these other black females, tacky all the way. Uh, Other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have uh, a hand up, proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Ooh, I'll wait. Greetings, Puff. Greetings. Hello. Sorry to cut y'all off, but uh, I heard a little bit of the program and I uh, want to respond to this and deal. I want to deal with what I saw with this Black Panther. Uh, the whites, first of all, I noticed that the whites are using several codes at the same time. The first code they're using is they are not paying black entertainers the way they are paying whites. Okay, the man Chadwick Boseman, victim of racism, he get paid eight hundred and some thousand dollars, and then you cut to Iron Man, which is under the same franchise, fifty million dollars uh, per each time he appear as Iron Man. So. You know, they done licensed, they done made dolls of Black Panther, all this old stuff, and he only got paid 800 and some thousand dollars, okay? And then you cut to uh, Iron Man, uh, Downer Jr. said he he get paid, uh, he was in the, I think it was the Avengers movie, it was some other movie that was not Iron Man, and they said, well, if he appear in that movie, do he get paid $50 million? And they said yes for like 50, for 15 minutes. He wasn't in the movie for 15 minutes, but they still had to pay him 
fifty million dollars. Okay, that's one thing. That's one issue uh, that that victim of racism, Monique, keep bringing up. It's the shortfall in pay comparative to uh, to we compare it to other Marvel films. The cast don't get paid that much, so you know the lead character get paid the most. So he the the key to that is he only get paid eight hundred some thousand dollars, okay? Then we got to deal with the story, okay? The story is not pitting African Americans against Africans, but exploiting the resources. The first thing I thought when I seen Wakanda is where's this mythical place? It's it's not. I mean, it can't be anywhere in Africa because I mean, pretty much the Europeans not only colonized Africa, but their business interests are exploiting all the resources out of Africa. You know, they're taking diamonds out of the ground, and they, you know, you're taking diamonds out of the ground, but people are starving to death. Like, what, compare those two things, okay? So getting into that, then I want to deal with the white pattern. The white pattern in the movies, not only is there a code of decency, it's some kind of other code, what is that called? I think it's called the Hayes Code, H-A-Y-E-S. The Hayes Code, not only dealing with decency, but like stuff they program do in movies. Like the only white character, he got quote-unquote saved, in other words. I know there was another white character. They shot at him, but it's the other white character dealing with the CIA. They, they quote-unquote saved him. I thought it was good that they showed that Africa had different medical situations. They had different medical care for the for the people, you know, and often better medical care, you know, than than doctors do today. There's some truth to that. And then the thing the thing that I want to deal with is the Africa story. They took it seemed like they were piecemealing stuff together, like where was this, you know, where was this located? I mean, it looked. From the map, it looked like the I mean, tan, around Tanzania and stuff, because you know they dealt with the mountains and all this old type of stuff when they went into the mountains, and they low key called them people uh, with the fur on. They called them gorillas, lo, low key. They was low key. They were grunting and stuff. I got mad when I seen it, but anyway. Okay, they were piecemealing stuff together. Then you could not tell where this was. And then, see, they not explaining that to young children. I think they were saying on the news that they took whole classes to see this movie or whatever. So it was piecemealed together. Like, okay, the Congo, okay, that part of Africa is the Congo or whatever. And then they were saying something about bass. Bass, bass the cost of bass, that was in Egypt. So it was like you couldn't like follow, they were piecemealing stuff together, okay, but this is a fantasy film, whatever, whatever. I just, the whole thing was just, I I, I, I have mixed feelings about all that, but mostly negative, because, I mean, I just, I just didn't like the whole, that they trying to promote this movie about, you know, these people. I mean, it's a, it's a, somewhat good story, but like not really. Once you like get past the surface of it and really see what what Hollywood is doing and continue to do. 
first of all, Black Panther, you know, I'm I watch Marvel movies or whatever, but you know, none of the stuff he could he couldn't fly, he couldn't you know what I'm saying? They didn't give him all of the powers of a you know, of a that I wanted to see. You know, it was just thirty seconds a car chase. We seen sorry, that we've seen five million times and that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead. The next person. Appreciate that, Puff. Uh, I, I will say, I saw Marvel's Luke Cage. Wowee. I've never seen Empire, but because I saw Marvel's Luke Cage, I feel like I've seen Empire. I do not ever want to see it again. If they, they do another season, um, that they boiled a black person in acid in Luke Cage. Horribly anti-black. What 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 is the saying, George Bush? He... he, he you remixed it if if you get fooled once can't get fooled again marvel got me once they will not get me again uh emmy thank you for your patience did you have commentary you wanted to share greetings can i be heard greetings speak up please okay can i be heard is this clear crystal okay okay now you're breaking up but anywho um i'm gonna I wanted to share this. I recorded it, and it's really short, but hopefully you all will be able to hear it. So here we go. Make sure the volume is up. I don't know if you could hear all the way, but I was in class. And um, we were learning about different forms of cancer and all that stuff. And the rising uh, cancer in um, young adults is melanoma um, and due to tanning beds. And so the professor said that people are paying, like, you know, people are paying to be bathed in a carcinogen. And she said, and the idea, she said, oh, now I'm so tan, I look so pretty. And I was just like, oh, I have to share that. Um, yeah, that was one thing. The other thing that I wanted to um, address, I guess just since it's been mentioned um, a, a few times, I'm not, I don't care about the movie at all. Um, I've seen the movie, but that was because I was asked to do a talk back um, with some young people after the movie. So I can at least say, um, for that situation, I was all for it. Any opportunity where I can speak with about racism with anybody, racism, white supremacy, with uh, well, not anybody, but non-white people, whether they're, you know, young people or adults, I'm totally taking advantage of it. Um, but I definitely appreciate being able to speak with the young people, and I made sure to um, make it clear as much as I could um, you know, with the time that I had and everything, you know, this is a fantasy film. Africa really is not in control of in, of its resources um, and so forth and allowed them really to share and stuff like that. And children are very much impacted by images. So, you know, um, I will say that there is a, like, an, uh, it is very successful in its ability. I think, like, anything is to... Um, say, like, no matter what, violence is just off the table for you. Um, but it was it was as constructive as I could make it, given the fact that it was a film. But I was grateful for the opportunity to do it, and so that's that. Um, 
I thought it was very interesting um, in the, uh, I think this one was about the HBCU film, or the film about HBCUs, and um, someone says, all you know is your slave life. Like, you don't even know there's an Africa. Whenever I'm reminded about how it was illegal to even read and write, I'm very emotional about it. Um, like, I don't know why that triggers me in such a way, but I'm so emotional about it. And then just to think, you know, because you would think maybe the first generation, second generation, you know, like, would have some memories and share some stories. And I know we did the best we could, but at some point, like, it, I feel like I would have to admit to myself whether I wanted to or not that there came a point when it was erased almost completely. And I guess, you know, what with the exception of maybe what we were able to keep in, like, being able to make certain food or something like that or, like, cornrow and hair, like, real, real, like, basic, basic ways, but a complete ignorance about the entire world. Because it's one thing, like, you always think, like, okay, well, we would have remembered, but no, like, I don't. I think this was the first time I really, you know, not the first time, or maybe I'm just reminded, like, to the state that white people took us to by having us be for 400 years like that. I know there were some that, you know, were in the house or maybe overheard conversations and stuff like that, but there's a large number of black people who probably did not have that, and in which case, like, we're, we've been um, retarded um, in a literal sense. And uh, anyway, so um, I thought it was also interesting in the clip about with the Dr. Galay or whatever with Boston University, and it's essentially worse for those who are already traumatized. And, of course, all I think about is us. And uh, so anytime we see anything, and I think it's important because this was focused primarily on news clips or things that happen, like, in reality, but there's enough evidence to suggest that things that um, are not necessarily reality, like movies and things like that, also cause physiological responses in the body. And any any emotion is a physiological response. Any like anytime you have any emotion, you're releasing chemicals and hormones and all that into your bloodstream. So you're having a physiological response. And those little chemicals can turn on or off genes. I wish I could talk more about it, but I learned that, and now I finally understand like the level with which we've been affected. But I thought that was very interesting. Um, I also, I looked up that Southern poverty, whatever, and, uh, the hate and extreme extremity report. And they have like a whole page on the outright. And I thought it was fascinating because there's a couple of statistics that like list these individuals who've committed crimes or, and like hate crimes and how many people have actually been killed, like due to alt-right folks. But I don't hear any of that. Like, and I could only imagine if it had been perhaps like Black Lives Matter and even one Black Lives Matter situation where a group of Black Lives Matter, like one rogue Black Lives Matter individual went and, you know, we would never hear the end of it. We would never. But I've never heard of any of these things that was listed there. I think, you know, if you have the time, check it out. Um, and they're, they're absolutely a protected group. There's a man who asked a question earlier like, is this just the beginning? Absolutely. Dr. Welsing has said over and over and over again, genocide, 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 genocide. That is the end 
of this whole thing. So it has to get worse. And then I listened to some of the later things, like you can tell the difference in her voice if you listen to her earlier and then you listen to her like shortly before she died. It was like genocide, suburban concentration camps, genocide, moving black people out of the urban areas. And, you know, one thing I think is interesting is, you know, war evolves just as people evolve. And white people definitely evolve their forms and tactics with war. And so you have one group here, you have a group here, you have the environmental thing here. Like, we are in that place. And I think that's, um, like, Dr. Wozen would call it the genocide slide. Um, I don't know the numbers. I'm going to find the numbers. But... If, if that many black people are dying all over the, the world and even here and I don't know about it, then I, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that it's worse than I would want to accept. Thank you for listening. Great job with recording. Welsing moment for sure there on the uh, tanning situation and the cancers. And absolutely, she said that repeatedly, genocide. That was the exact phrasing that she used, and a sense of urgency, genocide. Other folks we've not heard from, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Um, I appreciate the um, segment on environmental racism, especially it being in Nova Scotia. Um, it reminded me of something that John Henry Clark used to say, which is that uh, nowhere on this planet do people of African descent have friends. So the idea of the farther north we have traveled to find more places of liberty and freedom is a myth. So I'm glad that segment was um, in the broadcast. Um, there was something that was really interesting about that segment on the school board member. Uh, who had uh, made a made some sort of um, article or something written that had a noose on it and said that people need to fear punishment again. And the thing that jumped out at me, that stood out for me, was the word again. I saw that as the operable word because when I think of again, I think of something that was in place the first time. But <clears throat> I'm trying to remember when there was a time in which white people had to fear punishment without the fact that they are in a system that allows for their crimes to be blamed on black people or that their um, crimes are given an excuse and not accepted as pathology, but rather just some kind of rational behavior that needs to be corrected, um, but never to the full extent of the law. They've never been called terrorists. They've actually never been called anything accurately to my knowledge, in a way that would hold them accountable to even their own rules and laws. So when um, that white man says, again, that's very telling to me that he's not referring to actually white people. Um, I'm also reminded um, there was once a time in this country where a sexual assault was punished by execution. But uh, <clears throat> more often than not, that um, punishment was reserved for black people. Um, you know, Emmett Till comes to mind. Uh, George Stinney comes to mind. There, there, there's just a lot of history that comes to mind in terms of the disparity 
of the terror that they have wrought on um, black people by having a system that does not um, treat people justly. Um, there, there was also something interesting in that segment about um, the white supremacists that, or, the, or the idea that white supremacy is increasing um, in this country and, and globally. I remember reading last year a story about the increase of white supremacist groups in Poland, which is um, very telling because if, if anyone knows of the history of Poland, um, it was the beginning of World War II that was marked by the invasion of Poland by the Nazis. And now, uh, during recent times, you have neo-Nazi groups um, in Poland, which is, is very telling um, to the degree of how powerful white supremacy actually is. Um, but there was something also that I had noticed during that segment in which uh, the man said that um, he said that there are other forms of white supremacy that do not need to be overlooked. At first they were talking about the Klan and neo-Nazis and the alt-right, and then he said there are other forms of white supremacy that don't need to be overlooked. And the host quickly associated that term with systematic racism and structural racism, which led me to think that they are not in the dark. They, they're not ignorant about what white supremacy actually is. He, he, quickly connect, he, he quickly associated that with something outside of the idea that, oh, there are fringe groups and they wear funny clothes and costumes and they're very violent. And they, but they did not continue on the thread of associating that white supremacy operates in every area of people activity. They, they quickly uh, went past that. And I thought that was something to uh, be noted. And also, um, very quickly, probably before we know it, Halloween will arrive. And I'm just very curious um, how people are going to deal with white children wanting to dress up as Black Panther characters. I've been thinking about that since the movie. Um, and the last thing I'll share is that um, I have a friend who shared a story that happened um, with them at work. They have a coworker white woman who was in the adoption process and this is what was said by this white woman at their job I quote until then I had no idea that Asian was not considered white I had no idea Hispanic wasn't considered white I had no idea that many races even existed I thought it was just black and white unquote that is also very telling um, and then I inquired, well, about the adoption process because I'm not familiar with that, but apparently you can decide and check, the, you know, the, uh, the race or the ethnic identity of the child you want to adopt. And this person um, checked either white or anything half white. I thought that was also uh, uh, very telling. So. Um, thank you. Also, I've been getting um, getting more into the archives. Very great um, constructive information there that has been very helpful um, in uh, um, just study in in helping my understanding of 
of racism, white supremacy. So uh, never forget the archives and all the good constructive information that is there, and I will mute my line. Appreciate that. <clears throat> I know some folks are having issues with some of the archives not being accessible. I'm going through to correct that as well. It's been a lot with the flood and, you know, system of white supremacy gives us a lot of work to do. Uh, if other folks dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, feel free. Go ahead and speak now. Uh, yes, sir. Heard? Uh, let's see. Let's get uh, Roz first. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, greetings to you, Gus. Uh, peace and greetings to you and to all the callers and the listeners. Uh, great show as, as always. Um, I wanted to start by answering the question that was uh, asked by the uh, black male earlier, um, and greetings to you too. Um, yes, I, I think that uh, President Trump is a, a, a sign of what's to come as far as, um, because at this point, the numbers, white people's numbers are dropping very rapidly. They have, they're coming up with all of these myriad ways of giving birth and of uh, creating life from taking skin cells and um, now you have the first three-parent child that was just created in the lab. Um, I know that the child, the very first embryonic uh, white child is now 21 years old. She was conceived like a few decades ago, and she's now 21. I read an article about that earlier this year um, or late last year. And uh, I think the, the lower their numbers drop, the, the more intense their uh, – expression of white supremacy is going to be, especially in this country. So that's um, my take on your question. I think it's a, a great observation. Um, the uh, When Thomas in New York, uh, and peace to you too, he, he had talked about uh, briefly about the Black Panther when the white male went about exercising after watching the film. I thought of, the, I thought of that um, segment is, or that particular thing as well, and it reminded me of uh, Neely Fuller when he talked about uh, white people back in the 60s starting to get into exercising and jogging under the assumption that there was a race war coming. And to me, Black Panther, for that white person who went about exercising, he was a reminder. That movie was a reminder for, okay, if black people decide to really, you know, do something, especially something physical, about what we're doing to them, I need to be prepared. So he started exercising. It wasn't because Black Panther is his hero. It's because he's reminding him. It was a reminder to him of how, how dangerous an adversary black people can be if we put our, our um, psychological energy towards uh, really doing something about this system. Um, so I found that to be very telling. Metal detectors in school. Man, um, I went to a school called Aviation High School in Queens, um, and when I got there, that was the first year they started using metal detectors. And um, I remember at least two to three uh, graduating classes prior is when uh, crime uh, skyrocketed in the school, and it was a very interesting thing. So this, this year that I came in was the year that they applied the whole concept of using metal detectors, and it was um, very normalized. Like it, I mean, I just have to say it. It was just a normal way of doing things. Um, and to me, it's, it was just psychosocial conditioning towards the prison industrial complex 
Um, that's the way I looked at it when they did it, but it was something that was normalized because it was spreading throughout the schools, and New York had a serious um, gang problem, but it wasn't uh, Crips and Bloods. It was basically the homegrown gangs that had been there for many generations. So, um, yeah, that that was a, a, a very interesting time frame because the schools in New York were just, there was just not a game. And at that time, we used to have uh, gangs that would actually rob entire schools. They would actually go to schools and rob the whole school, run through the hallways and stick up everybody they could. Um, and there was times where we had to actually fight them off. So I know like what what they used as the premise to do it. But I agree with Thomas. White people shoot up schools more than anybody else. You don't hear of black mass shooters, and they're the ones that need the metal detectors. <laughs> that's, that's, I think it's always been that way. Um, uh, Weeksville, Brooklyn. Very interesting because I grew up in uh, Park Slope and I know about Sarah J. Hale, piece to the um, black male who went to that school. Um, that's that's in my old neighborhood, and Weeksville is not too far from where I grew up, where my, where my father was in Prospect Heights. Crown Heights uh, actually borders Prospect Heights. And I always knew about Weeksville. I knew about it for quite a long time. And um, it was just an incredible uh, place as far as what it meant to. Uh, the legacy of black people in the New York City area. I just wanted to read a brief paragraph out of from their, um, the, the museum's website. And this is uh, a segment about the 1860s historic house, a single-story double house that contains furniture and other artifacts relating to the mid-19th century. Visitors learn about the agrarian village of Weeksville and its inhabitants during the Civil War. During the 1863 New York City draft riots, Weeksville served as a refuge for African Americans escaping the violence in Lower Manhattan. At this time, residents enjoyed a self-sufficient life, participating in a variety of occupations and developing several important community institutions. Now, um, it was just a, a center for positive, um, upwardly mobile activity of black people. Um, it wasn't burnt down or attacked. Basically, it was gentrified, and that's how things change, which is it's happening even more now. Um, but, um, yeah, that, that's how the white attack and assault on Weeksville took place was through gentrification rather than just um, uh, doing a sundown town type of uh, scenario there. But it's a, a, a fascinating story, something that people should know about. And I just had an announcement. Um, it really um, – I, I left Brooklyn a long time ago, but Brooklyn – is a place that I grew up, and I, I know all about the borough, quite a bit about the history, and I've traveled quite to almost everywhere in Brooklyn there is to travel. And my wife and I tonight actually opened up our store in Bed-Stuy, um, and the first night was really great as far as just the reception. It's my wife and three other black females that have come together to open this business. They each have their own individual businesses, and they have their products all displayed together and they're able to sell them, and it's, the whole area is becoming gentrified, but the black people in that area own a lot of the property, which I was so happy about. Um, it's a black male that owns the space that we uh, have leased from him, and um, very positive black male made the, made the process quite easy, and uh, it, it was just uh, from because I wasn't able to go. I had to watch my mother-in-law tonight while my son and my wife were there, as well as a few other people and, and the other uh, black females that she's opened the, the establishment with. And everything went really, really, really positive. Um, all of the black people in the neighborhood came out um, and and bought a lot of things and supported. And and it was just a great night from what I understand. So I really think there's some good things to come. I always I never thought I was going to leave Brooklyn as a child. But um, it feels good to be able to go back to 
my hometown and do something positive um, for the community and do something entrepreneurial. It's something I've talked about for a long time, and it's just good to be able to say that I'm, I'm able to help my wife and we're able to facilitate this together. And hopefully it will continue to grow, but I just wanted to say that. It was just really was great to have the opening tonight, and um, just something I wanted to announce. And thanks again, Gus, for this program. I appreciate you and all the calls and listeners. I learned from you all quite immensely. And um, like I said, it just feels good to have the ability to speak with and uh, be educated by other like-minded black people who want to end the system. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, congratulations to you, your wife, uh, her colleagues. Uh, that is outstanding. I wish you all uh, tremendous prosperity and uh, fiscal growth. Uh, hopefully it will be a long-lasting and uh, prosperous enterprise. That is great. You can give us updates on workplace racism as well. Uh, other folks, uh, that I think there was a male caller who dialed in simultaneously. Did you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, good evening, Gus. This is Kwame from the Bronx. Uh, this, I just wanted to thank you for having Kamal Kimban, um, Dr. Kamal Kimban on last Wednesday. Uh, he gave a lot of great information. It was really good to um, hear from him and learn from him. He gave um, – and, yeah, I, I can't wait till um, Dr. Tommy Curry – comes back. Um, I'm really curious as to when he's going to make another appearance on the cows. Uh, I just, I'm definitely going to be a, a the first person to call in when he comes back to talk about a lot of of the black male misandry that goes on on these college campuses. It's really um, prevalent. It's it's really pervasive throughout all these college campuses. And um, some, I didn't hear the clips. Some of the comments, some of the commentary I have from this week um, under the system of white supremacy is that um, while riding um, New York City trans, um, New York City public transportation this week, um, something that I observed uh, that was really disheartening and was uh, I saw a lot of you know pretty beautiful um, black female children playing with dolls, um, blonde hair, blue-eyed, white dolls. And it, it really broke my heart. It was really saddening. Uh, I saw a lot of it this week um, riding on, um, you know, New York City buses. And I was like, wow, I mean, have we taken a step back? I mean, I've seen, I have saw a lot of black, these black female children, you know, playing with these white dolls. And I was just like, wow, I mean, like, man. Oof. And, um, yeah, uh, this week I, I was able to attend that meeting again, uh, the Black Student Union on my college campus. I was able to attend their meeting again this week on Wednesday. Um, what we talked about, the topic of discussion at this meeting was um, black mental health. And what I noticed was that the black females that were, you know, really contributing to this conversation a lot, they had black um they were in tragic arrangements and yeah uh and they were they were in tragic arrangements and making some good points about black, thank you uh <laughs> making some good points about black mental health but i just couldn't shake the hypocrisy of 
what they were saying because how could you really discuss black mental health? You know, they were really doing a good job of talking about black mental health, but how could you really understand black mental health while in a tragic arrangement? <laughs> like, you're not mentally healthy yourself to be, you know, engaging in sexual intercourse with suspected racists while under the system of racism, white supremacy. So it was just, it was a really interesting conversation. Um, also, I just wanted to let you know that uh, I just wanted to ask for your advice, some feedback on a blog I created recently. Um, I created it during um, your time off during the cows, that, that month between December and January um, when you were ha- going through your difficulties during the cows. Um, the, the URL for my blog is invisiblenegro.blogspot.com. Uh, the blog, you really inspired me to create this blog, and I just wanted to thank you so much because the reason why I created it was because I thought you, <laughs> I was a little afraid that you weren't coming back on the cows and that you weren't going to post, any, and you haven't posted a lot on your blog recently, and I, I really love your blog. I've learned a lot from your blog. At, um, yeah, and I just wanted to create my own blog to get my views out on racism and white supremacy. So, um, yeah, and the blog is inspired by my my uh, my like my uh, strong connection with and enjoyment of reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, I've always uh, I've listened to the cows for years, and I've just recently started calling in. But I really thought that me and you were like kindred spirits <laughs> because of our our enjoyment of um, reading that book, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Because I always thought um, that in order to really enjoy that book and appreciate that book and the writing by Ralph Ellison, it's like you really have to understand the system of racism, white supremacy, while at the same time having a really (laughs) sort of like twisted sense of humor about it, about the insanity of it all. And uh, so, yeah, I created that blog, so I, I just wanted I would just really would appreciate some feedback on some of the writings I've done so far on it. It's not it's it's not the best writing so far. It's it's some stuff I've been freestyling. Again, it's invisiblenegro.blogspot.com, and um, that's all I had to say. And you know, um, thank you so much for giving me time to share. Thank you. Reading and writing more important than watching television. That is great. Uh, we need more uh, attempted counter-racists to not being spectators. Uh, whatever outlet you choose, if that means writing or making a film, both, uh, podcast, anything uh, that you can think, all of the above, uh, that you can think of uh, to try to solve the problem. Outstanding. Glad that you are uh, doing some writing doing some thinking. It's been my experience that writing helps you clarify, organize your thoughts, uh, which is great for attempted counter-racists. And folks can check out the blog spot and leave a comment. I guess he's asking for feedback, so leave a comment. That would be appreciated. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from from Lee, uh, if you have... uh, if you have commentary, feel free. If we miss you, if we have not heard from you at all, you should go ahead and speak up now. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Yes. 
Everyone in go Florida. Ahead, sir. Uh, let's see. We'll get. Oh, well, there you go. Retired firefighter, proceed. Okay, uh, I'm just going to uh, read this uh, brief article that I thought was interesting. Uh, it came out apparently this this morning. Uh, the title of it is Parkland is Sparking a Difficult Conversation about Race, Trauma, and Public Support. A Question of Activism We Acknowledge and the Activism We Ignore. For more than a week, the students of Majority, of Majority Stoneman Douglas High School have held the country's attention as they join with peers across the country to demand a change in America's gun laws. The acts of protests and their cutting statements to politicians have made them a powerful force, drawing considerable media coverage and the backing of multiple celebrities. And their organizing is just beginning. Students have planned two national events in March, the National School Walkout and the March of Our Lives. Several celebrities have donated cash towards the students' goals, including Steven Spielberg and George Cooney. When announcing her $500,000 donation to the March for Our Lives, Oprah Winfrey tweeted that these inspiring young people remind me of the Freedom Riders of the 60s, who also said, we've had enough and our voices will be heard. Over at Slate, Dehila Lithwick also noted the power of the students' activism, writing that with each spin, of the news cycle, these students are offering a lesson for all of us about what protesters can look like and how we can reimagine social justice in the Trump era. But for some black racial justice activists, organizers, and public figures, the reaction to the students of Stoneman Douglas has also led to another truth. Organizing around Black Lives Matter and the larger movement for black lives, another youth-led movement demanding policy changes in the wake of trauma was not and has not been as readily embraced. Uh, and and it, it gives some, uh, what I guess are some tweets. I'll read one or two of them. Uh, this came, comes from uh, Charlene Carruthers. Gosh, this is amazing. And I'm not being sarcastic. I have to be honest and say that I'm a bit taken back, and she has in parentheses, and a bit hurt that those of us who were in the streets in the past five years for black lives didn't receive this type of reception or public support. Uh, and uh, that's the only one I'll read. But anyway, uh, at the end of it, the difference is noticeable as student anger began bubbling to the surface in the aftermath of the Florida school shooting in Parkland, while the students and parents speaking up were no more passionate than the young people of, say, the Black Lives Matter movement, it was clear that the political establishment was going to receive them a different way, New York contributor Emily Witt noted last week. It opens up a complicated discussion about who gets empathy in America. What issues are deemed important and the types of activism and, act, and activists that the public responds to? And while there are no easy answers, that doesn't make the conversation any less necessary. Parkland, Trayvon Martin, and how America responds to black communities versus white ones. 
When highlighting the disparity in public reaction, activists and organizers have noted that their words should not be taken as an attack on the students, but rather as a challenge to how the trauma of certain groups is perceived. White people get to be everything. They get, they get and I think they made a mistake, but they probably meant to say they get to be victims. They get to be heroes. And black people, unfortunately, continue to be criminalized for our moments of courage, for our moments of mourning and grieving. Black Lives Matter Network co-founder Patricia uh, Coolers said, when asked about the differing reactions to Parkland and black racial ju- justice organizing during a HuffPost Black History Month panel earlier this week, this week, and that often looks like when we go out into the streets, when we protest, when we demand our lives to matter, we're given heavy police repression. Why don't black people get to be victims? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, she added. This isn't to say that the Parkland students have received criticism. Conspiracy theorists have claimed their crisis actors and that the students were being manipulated by liberal groups uh, and D- Democratic billionaire George Soros. But it's hard to imagine students from largely white, solidly middle-class Florida suburbs being painted as thugs or extremists for their actions. And the speed with which the students have forced a conversation and the changes that conversations have already brought about are considerably different. As, uh, but anyway, uh, I guess everybody gets the gist of uh, uh, where this article is going. I think it's, I think it's accurate. I think it's accurate. I think it's something that needed to be uh, uh, brought out uh, because I've been kind of like following it from that perspective. Uh, and I personally, my thought was on, on a personal basis is that uh, with all of the, with all of the uh, reports by other people about uh, this white person who did the killing, uh, I mean, informing the seemingly the, the, the correct quote-unquote authorities uh, verbatim uh, and there was no response at all by those uh, authorized uh, organizations, including the FBI. Uh, if that was, had that been a non-white black person, uh, uh, I don't think the incident would have never happened. And just last but not least, uh, uh, I, I hear some about metal detectors. Uh, I don't see the proficiency of them. Uh, the first two people that he shot was outside of the school. He shot his way into the school. And being that I spent a great deal of time around high schools, uh, uh, if a killer wanted to, quote, unquote, kill children, uh, you can't have, you can, you can just wait till people come out of school and there's packs of, of children who in and around the school, in and around on the athletic fields, uh, that could be done, so uh, I don't see where that would solve uh, the problem at all. And yes, I agree with what I've heard from some of the uh, uh, people on the program that have had experience uh, metal detectors. Uh, they, on purpose, want those places to look just like prisons uh, because that's what they have been preparing for our children to be at, 
and they have been so far quite successful, and that's all I have to say for right now. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, our other caller in Florida, thank you for your patience, sir. Oh, yes. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, with the, the previous caller, um, I agree with that, uh, those statements, uh, and that actually reminded me of uh, two things, you know, because this is a uh, a very – well, it's, it's been a long-going uh, issue and situation about guns and uh, gun violence. But as was said before, four or five years ago, you know, with uh, Trayvon Martin, and he was a victim of gun violence, and the contempt that was shown for him and his family, the way that the words that was used to describe him as a thug, and he was just... Uh, into mischief he didn't want to go to school and he smoked this and that and they released his picture of him uh, laying down on the ground just total contempt for him and in the same state of florida and now all of a sudden just a increased value for white life uh, and it's like people want to seem like they forgot that and the, another thing is that there was an internet meme going around about, well, hey, if 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 all black males or black men went out and bought AR rifles or AR-15s, then maybe they would get banned. Like that, that is a major insult or an act of racism. I don't know who came up with that message because uh, I, I was thinking about that as well, but I forgot to share it last week. Uh, as far as the, the the Black Panther movie, like I thought about The Lion King and like the success that that movie has had, you know, and like just you know panthers and lions, like that's they basically cats or whatever. So um, just like that movie being based, I think Africa in Africa as well, and you know using black actors, okay, to um, to be the voices of animal characters and having the royalty applied to it like King or Lion King. And, you know, it's pretty much Disney and Marvel, same kind of, uh, I guess, company. Uh, with that, that segment on, I think they was talking about the hate groups, like that, that had to be a, uh, a white supremacist female that called in and said, well, is the, is the Nation of Islam or Louis Farrakhan, is that considered a hate group? I, I heard it was taken off. And see, like, what he what he used that, that example, saying something about, well, uh, when since Donald Trump has gotten into office now, see, this is the reason why, you know, white supremacy still exists in America, and see, we should just go to this separate. Like, he, he used that, okay? as an example to compare that with Richard Spencer and, you know, the constant uh, white supremacist violence, uh, Charlottesville, et cetera. Like, how can you compare those two things? 
um, Minister Farrakhan, he's just been uh, speaking very effectively toward the system. So they're going to put that in the same category in terms of a uh, hate group, and nobody's even defining that, what that means. And uh, speaking of definitions, uh, for my workplace, well, I was going to share this with uh, for workplace racism, but I just wanted to uh, mention this because I, I know you were talking about asking questions. So uh, I sat in the front of the class because this is a mandatory class we have to take on mental health, you know, um, and everybody in the workplace has to go to this class. And it's an eight-hour class. I just went there yesterday. So I've been, I, I said, hey, I was going to ask what is the definition for mental health. So it was a white guy, and it was, you know, it was in front of everybody. I didn't care. I said, uh, I said, is there a definition for mental health? And, you know, everybody was quiet. And, you know, he just kind of turned around and looked at me. He had this PowerPoint up, and he says, uh, well, uh, it, you know, it, in, it incorporates many different aspects and things that you just have to sit and think about and, um, you know, a whole bunch of jargon. You know, he didn't really answer the question. So he said within the next 30 minutes, maybe you will just get the answer out of that. So I think that was an act of racism. And nobody else said anything. Like, he didn't answer my question. You know what I mean? So uh, he comes back to me when we went on lunch break. And uh, he said, well, uh, you know, uh, I just I was I was thinking about that, you know, that's you brought up some very good points, you know, during the class. And uh I I guess he might have looked it up or something. And he you know, that you made very much sense when you say you should have a definition for words. Okay, now this is the instructor, you know. So he says, Well, I would say mental health is the mental, emotional and physical well-being of a person it was something to that effect and uh, we went on with the the second half of the class and that's all I had to share right now thanks for allowing me to share spectacular <clears throat> that is I uh, always really really get, get some gratitude hearing that in my view that is application of counter-racist logic, counter-racist principles, because uh, that's one of the main things that we can do is ask questions, especially in a workplace environment, uh, to just be able to add, and especially asking for definitions. If we got to sit here and take up eight hours of the day, I mean, wow, we should at least be able to get a clear definition about what we mean if we're supposed to be talking about mental health. I want to make sure I'm mentally healthy. What's the criterion? Give me the definition, and I'll know if I'm mentally healthy or not. And if you got to go and, and get scribbled down something on your lunch break, like, oh, man. <laughs> Why? But, I mean, see, the detail that you get when you ask questions, because you'll see that a lot of times. Uh, these whites, they come in, and they're professorial, and they got their white lab coat on, and they're just supposed to be an authority just because they classify, identify as white. And you start asking some questions, and it's, oh, man, you just coming in here to say anything. You don't even have any details. You don't even have any information uh, for, to present. We're just supposed to listen to you talk just because you are classified as white. 
great job. Ask questions. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've not heard from you at all, you should definitely speak now because time is winding down. Uh, Red in Nevada, did you have uh, commentary? You should be with us. Um, yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, I guess the only thing that I wanted to share this week, because I've actually been thinking about it um, since yesterday with the workplace racism, um, uh, since since workplace racism is the failure to apply um, what we've, you know, been studying about and what we've learned. And so I was practicing what I was going to say if, a suspected racist um, commented on how I speak because I try to make sure that I speak very properly or formally or professionally. And I've gotten this before several times in my life how um, white people comment on how well I speak. But for whatever reason, I was trying to practice in the car on my way to the store. So I get to the store, I speak properly as I normally do, and this cashier, this white woman cashier says, oh, you speak so formally. I like that. And I don't know why it just got to me, but I still did not. I basically did like the hmm type of thing. And I was mad at my, and like later on when I, I tried to hurry up, finish conducting my business and leave out the store, but I was mad at myself because I did not, you know, use what I actually just practiced. I didn't know that I was going to happen but I didn't even apply it. And I feel like sometimes I just am so unsure of if I do know what I'm supposed to do, if, if, this, is the, if, if this is the right time. And so I guess that's just, I mean, that's really just has, what's been on my mind for the past couple of days. Um, I guess that's, that's all I'll share for today. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged red in Nevada. I think that's hugely important. That's another one that's not not as much fun to talk about, uh, times where we uh, do not choose to apply uh, our counter-racist logic. And I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about that as well, that uh, United Independent uh, Counter-Racist Codification is not something where you are obligated just because you know this information now that every single time you're obligated to do this. Uh, you know, that means... <clears throat> Uh, that on Monday, uh, maybe I'm going out and I'm going exactly by counter-racist codification in terms of what I say, what I do, and then on Tuesday, I'm not doing that. That's a part of the code, too. It is uh, at a time and place of your choosing. However, I do think it is important to examine the times uh, when we choose not to apply counter-racist logic. Why did we make that decision? Uh, what was What was motivating... Uh, us to stand down, I'll say, put that in quotes at that moment. And sometimes it can be we were just not expecting uh, racism, white supremacy to be practiced so quickly. We were thinking this is going to be something we're going to be dealing with later, tomorrow at work, and it happens immediately. I think that's sometimes you just are not prepared for racism, white supremacy, and that's something that we all want to work on, being prepared, because racists, they do not vacation. Anyone that we missed? Anybody have a hand up that we missed completely? Do we get everybody? Anybody we missed uh, totally? Do we nab everybody? 
Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Any final uh, remarks folks need to get in last few minutes before we uh, wrap things up? If you want to take like 60 seconds, if you have any, any comments, final comments you need to get in, anybody? Get the ahead, email man. caller first. I just want to quickly say congratulations to Roz and your family and um, just all the people involved. And I want to quickly say to uh, Red and Nevada that I think that your um, <clears throat> response was, was brilliant. I'd like to hear, you know, later the other response that you actually wanted to make. But I think these, these terrorists, they know exactly what they're doing. And you gave that person, when they, when they do that and they practice and they say that, you gave that person something to think about, to actually think about them um, coming at you about the way that you speak. And we deal with that all the time. And I'm actually going to use what you did, what you did, just that, hmm, to give them something to think about because they know what they're doing. And I'm in my life. Appreciate that, HV. Uh, male caller that uh, spoke up as well. Yes. Um, in regards to the Florida shooter, um, something that I have noticed is that his last name was Cruz, and I believe the last um, mass shooting before that, there was a shooter whose last name was also um, Latino, which reminds me of, um, you know, Dr. Francis Quest Welsing, Neely Fuller, um, and others who have the question, who is actually considered a white person? And that's just something that I, has been on my mind um, in the past few days. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I, I would like to uh, enlighten uh, the listeners that uh, Nicholas Cruz did harm two, at least two non-white people. One was a... Uh, young non-white male who would be called an Asian, quote-unquote, by the name of Peter Wayne, and it appears to be a non-white female. Uh, her first name was Helena. I just can't think of the last name right now. Cause I, I, text, I text her name to somebody, but I just can't remember by heart, and I don't want to go through my phone while I'm talking to y'all. Uh, but if, and all of their all of their pictures you can you can see yourself. Uh, they they've been placed as quote unquote stars at the time of their death, uh, and you can examine that for yourself at least two. And uh, he uh, has a if uh, everybody didn't know he has a quite a bit of money that was uh, left for him by his uh, deceased. Uh, uh, one of his deceased parents, but he was an adopted child, but they don't talk anything about his biological parents for some reason. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Can I be heard really quick before we close? Uh, Yes, Emmy, we can hear you. Okay. Um, Two words I just want to put out there, let people think about them is critical mass. Um, I think that's what we should, well, I don't even want to say what other people, but I think critical mass. Um, Another thing I wanted to say or ask, really, I have a request, um, just because there's so many people out there who have access to 
um, just like a lot of stuff that I don't. And even though I love to research and look, I know that I'm like only scratching the surface of certain things. So just if by any chance any of you all happen to like stumble upon or have some free time on your hands and want to like help me find some stuff, I would really, really, really appreciate it. The first thing I'm looking for is anything on behavior modification. Um, so if you're like in mental health or anything like that, like if you have access or resources or no places that I can look, if you would like send Gus an email um, and then he can get it to me and then maybe I can just correspond with you directly. The second thing is a really super small recordable device, like super small. I know about like USB chargers and pins and stuff like that, but the thing is I need to be able to like put it on me and just like leave it there and it just kind of be voice activated. So if any of y'all are like super high tech or know where I could find this, I'd really appreciate it. And then the other thing is now that I done dropped off and I'm not on any social media, I'm really, uh, I, please, can you send me where y'all get your news? I've asked Gus sometimes, I know like his, like a couple places he goes, but where do y'all get your news? If you don't mind just telling me like in an email or something so I know like what news places are credible. I would really, really appreciate it. And that's all. Thank you. They have got more recording devices than you could imagine. Uh, some of them are super cheap. Some of them might be a few more nickels, but oh man, uh, it just depends on how much research you want to do and how much you want to spend. I know uh, Princess in Florida, she was saying uh, one that's a watch. So I don't know if you want something that's smaller, but it's just it's a watch, uh, but you just tap it and it begins recording and it goes to your uh, phone. But that's one. But I mean, they have so many. They have little pins. It would just, you know, how stylish do you want it to be? How much do you want to spend? I'm sure some listeners are down for that. Uh, we have anybody last. It was a mail caller. 60 seconds. Last person to get their commentary in. Can I say something? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Roz Thomas, one of you. Oh yes, I I did um wanted to chime in because uh regarding the Florida shooting, I noticed like um I think it was last Thursday, they said that the shooter's brother was just, just admitted into a mental health facility. Um, so I think that they're going to use that to kind of facilitate um, possibly saying that, that mental illness runs in the family, and they might try to use that to save him or get him into a lesser. Uh, a situation where he's char charged with lesser charges. Um, also, workplace racism. I had a, I learned from a, a Puerto Rican coworker that before I started working at my new job, there was a white female um, that was the head of our department that I was in that, that I'm in now, and that prior to me starting there, that her and about three or four other little white urchins would collect all of the resumes of males that were applying to the company and throwing them in the trash before anyone could see them. So I know that this is happening at other people's companies. It was just that he happened to be a very open Puerto Rican uh, coworker who was just very honest with me, and it kind of blew my mind. I have a ton of other incidences, but I just wanted to put that out there just to let people know how they work in concert, and white people are always trying to devastate our lives in ways we can't imagine. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Race soldiers on the job constantly. Uh, Thomas, can you get your comment in in 30 seconds? Sorry, I was muted. Yes, sir, I can. Um, I just want to say um, 
any movie where black people don't win at the end, especially in a movie where the hero gets lynched at the end, I don't find it constructive, and I'll meet my line. Thank you, Gus. Indeed. My final comment on Black Panther, same thing I said before, you sound just like the Seattle white chicks in my yoga class. Fool me once, can't get fooled again. We will be back. Uh, You can check the Black Talk Radio Network page. You can check the Facebook page uh, for all of the updates for our upcoming broadcasts uh, this coming week. Uh, We'll have to drop uh, Dr. Curry a line and see if we can get him back on the program to chat it up uh, more recently. Uh, Thanks to all the folks who tuned in. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, I will again encourage sobriety would be best. Uh, I think race soldiers have done a lot of damage to non-white people worldwide with a variety of poisons and narcotics. I think it would be best we can preserve our brain computers to the best of our ability, preserve our sanity uh, so that we can come up with solutions, new concepts, counter-racist logic to permanently solve the problem, especially if you're going to be out and about in a vehicle. You do not want to be under the influence and have this be the time that you bump into Daniel Holt's claw or any other race soldier badge or no. And now you have to make life-saving decisions while you are intoxicated. No, thank you. Uh, If you're going to be in a vehicle, buckle up. Uh, Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.